The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when a bug-eyed innocent ingenue with rage issues gets his magnum opus pop cantata Faustian opera stolen by a glam rock Satan? What if a freak record press accident then leaves our infernal victim a hideously scarred monstrosity? Would taking on a new identity as a metal-toothed, bird-masked phantom of the Paradise Theater allow a pop-idol murder spree of suitable vengeance? Or was his soul already forfeit the moment he heard the dulcet tones of yet another woman who really won't ever give a shit about him? Well, let's find out. Because today we are pressing into Brian De Palma's 1974 oft-forgotten camp horror comedy glitter gothic vaudevillian masterpiece, The Phantom of the Paradise. So sit back and slip into your chrome-plated masks as we descend into the godless operatic fever dream that can only be described as a pure cinema paradise. Brought to you by another goddamn phantom-haunted theater, the OG of autotune, the glory of split screens, gaping chrome-toothed crooning, one-eyed soul-piercing stares, and once again, Satan. And of course, our safe word today is perdition. Anything to add, Benji? I was thinking about like where I sang a thing from like, you know, phantom related stuff or whatever, but that, I don't know. I mean, Gerard Butler can sing it better than I can, so but we're just not going to worry about that. For once, we're in agreement. Oh, what the hell, I'll do it anyway. Night time. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space. Boy. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Well. Oh, hi, Mark. God, that was painful. Yeah. Hi, I'm, Benji. That's not my goddamn name. Hi, London. How you doing? I am doing fantastic, even with your singing interludes, because this movie is fucking fantastic. It's a batshit crazy movie, but it's my kind of batshit crazy movie. Let's contextualize this a little bit. Please. This is a film, a 1974 film by Brian De Palma, so that puts it very, very early in his career. He hadn't quite made his auteur name for himself yet. Uh, Yeah, he hadn't even made Carrie quite yet. I think that was still a few years off for him. Right. And the first time I heard about this movie, I somehow came across a summary of it somewhere about a Phantom of the Opera meets Faust meets Picture of Dorian Gray, and then a bunch of other classic references wrapped together in an insane package of a wee fellow who just wants to write his pop cantata Faustian rock opera. As you do. Yeah, and this record producer who may be Satan fucks him over. (laughs) I was like, okay, this sounds fantastic. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. 
when this movie opened, it did not do well in theaters. It was a crazy mash of genres. This is a year before Rocky Horror. Rocky Horror would actually have the same issue with people being like, the fuck is this? Yeah. With the exception of a couple places. So, yes, this movie did really well in Paris. Like, oh, okay, yeah. Paris, yeah that makes France, sense. They, they got it going on. And then it also did well in that cultural hub of North America that you and I know as Winnipeg, Canada. Yeah. Respect, Winnipeg. Respect. Winnipeg took to this movie in a big way. I've seen theories on why this could be, but uh, it, yeah, just took to the city really well. And that is where like fan conventions for this movie have often taken place. Respect, Winnipeg. Thank you, Winnipeg. Way to go, Winnipeg. Good on you. Why did we do this film for Cinema of Cruelty is the question. Well, I would say the way this film is cruel is how aware we are of the artifice of film aspect of cruelty, for me anyway, uh, mm-hmm. that, which is why I like Brian De Palma. Uh, Brian De Palma loves to take you on a ride uh, in his films using techniques that lose the immersion of the story and make you just say, like, whoa, we're doing a split-screen thing now. This is crazy. Whoa, the image is so wide-angled now, and it's sped up. This is nutso. So it's a good example of that style that Brian DePaul liked to use a whole lot. And it's very fun. I enjoy it a lot. It's not for everybody. Not everyone likes Brian DePaul films, because he can be a polarizing figure for some people, both his movies and him in general. I have a good friend that when I asked if they had seen this film, they're like, well, I don't know how I feel about Brian De Palma. He's just not very subtle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then if that's your problem with De Palma, this film is not for you Uh, because this might be the least subtle of all of his films. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's saying something. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I do love this film because I love that Brian De Palma is not subtle. So having said that, I would say the best thing about this movie for me is the beautiful way that it blends three different sources together into its own new narrative. I'm a big believer in everything is a remix, and this is like a glorious remix of The Phantom of the Opera, or the story of Faust, picture of Dorian Gray. You kind of get some, like, Casco Amontillado from Edgar Allan Poe thrown in there a little bit here and there. It doesn't really stick, that one, but, but <laughs> all of that brought together to tell this new unique story I think is just so fascinating to watch unfold and if you understand all those source materials it just elevates this film in a great way yes I do have to agree in part that one of the best things about this movie is its intertextuality because anybody who knows me knows that I love a solid intertextual exercise in film do you now I don't know why you've never brought that up Mm -hmm. and yet somehow the thing that actually ekes a little bit higher on my list with this one is going to go back to that other thing I love so much in cinema, which is production and texture. Mm, I feel that. Everything that is in front of the camera in this film is just a visual delight. Mm -hmm. And the way that it's shot is a visual delight. So I just really love the visual feast that this movie provides for me almost more than the intertextuality. And that's saying something. What is the worst thing about this movie? Well, the worst thing about this movie is that it is unfortunately a product of the 70s. And with that comes 
a few unfortunate things from that time period, and that being very casual homophobia and racism thrown throughout this movie. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with that one fully. I'm, for once, I'm okay that we're agreeing on something yeah. in that area. It's not heavy-handed all the way throughout. There are just select moments mm-hmm. that just stick out where you're like, oh, 70s. Yeah. Oh, I wish you hadn't done that. Oh. I wish you hadn't said that. Choices were made, and they weren't all the best ones on that front. Yeah, this is the oldest film that we've ever done. Next to this would be Mazes and Monsters, which came out in 1982, and this is 1974. So that is going to crop up, and it's nothing that we like to see, but to ignore it being there would be just as bad. Yeah, so there are some problems here. That being said, the visual style, the visual style. Right on. And the plot. We kind of did a little bit of a lightning summary already, but we'll break down a lightning summary mm-hmm. here where we're going to have our little, I almost wanted to say wide-eyed, but no, this this dude is bug-eyed, um, Winslow Good. Leach. How fucking big are Bill Finley's eyes? Holy shit, it looked like he had a cue ball in his skull a few scenes yeah, there. Yeah, and he's really making him even bigger. <laughs> I mean, I feel like they had to be taped, like, pulling his eye socket open even more in some of those scenes. Yeah, Bill Finley has an absolutely fantastic face, and he's going to work it throughout this film. There are just amazing faces in this film. Yes, and so Bill Finley, our Winslow Leach, is going to be our titular phantom, but he's going to start out our bug-eyed, innocent ingenue. He's working on his Faust opera, Mm -hmm. his opera based on the story of Faust. Sure. And... That music is going to get stolen by an evil record producer who's going to put it on in his stead to open his new rock theater, The Paradise. Mm. And Winslow is going to go through a classic phantom transformation where he's going to get maimed, he's going to get injured, he's going to wind up almost dead but not, and then he's going to haunt The Paradise until, yeah, Satan gives him what he wants, I guess. That's what you do. You just, you hold out and wait until Satan delivers. (laughs) Yeah, and then, like, Satan's like, fine, let's strike up a deal, right? Give me your soul, and I'll Uh, let this chick that you're crushing on sing your music instead. Or will I? Or will I? Yeah, there's going to be a whole bunch of decisions. Yeah, you you know, Satan can do what he wants. That's what we've learned from all Satanic-based films. And that's like the short summers. We do have a Phantom of the Opera with a Faustian container. <laughs> and then we're going to get a Satan narrative uh, that is actually also a picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's like elements of it are Faust by way of Dorian Gray. It's very strange, but I it's love it. It's super fun. Yeah. And so we decided instead of just jumping right in, first what really needs to be set up is some of the things that this movie is going to be referencing because we're going to be pointing out throughout where some of these comparisons or these intertextual moments come in. Mm -hmm. And it helps to know what those references are up front. So the first big one is Phantom of the Opera. Benji, what is Phantom of the Opera? Phantom of the Opera is a story by French writer uh, Gaston LaRue. It was first a serialized fiction in uh, La Matine, uh, back in Paris in fall of 1910, and then was turned into a novel in 1911. And it's most known today because of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. However, that was, you know, still many years off uh, when this film came out. What's interesting about that is that the only English translation of that book that existed at this time 
was not a complete translation of the original novel, and we wouldn't get proper translations of that until many years later after the musical had brought more attention to it. So if you're a fan of the original book and you don't like the musical, well, give credit to the musical for bringing more attention to the original book because that got enough attention for proper translations of it to be made. Uh, I actually read uh, the most recent translation of this book by David Coward from 2012. Goddamn masochist. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm just a masochist that way. And it was interesting to read that because I'm like, wow, about every single movie version of this book completely ignores so many things in the book. So, be a fascinating read. Uh, there are some key similarities between book and this movie that I'll point out as we go. All right, but the... The core story of the Phantom, is it the one that we know for the most part? The things that remain from the novel are there is a place where music is being played. There is a guy who is really, really into music being played, uh, and he hurts people. And there's a young lady that he wants to see sing things more than other people want to see her sing things. Yeah, that's about it. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so the other references we're going to get are the picture of Dorian Gray and the picture of Dorian Gray is a novel by my other personal lord and savior since the well, first primary one is Nick Cage right, the other obviously. one is Oscar Wilde mm -hmm. published in 1890 but the core of the plot is what matters here for this movie which is going to be a young man Dorian Gray who has a friend who's a painter, and his friend is going to paint him and create this beautiful portrait of him and talk about beauty and the inspiration of beauty. And Dorian is going to get it in his mind that I'm not anybody in Victorian London unless I'm young and hot. And that's true, really, for Dorian's case, because mm. he doesn't have a lot of other stuff going on for him anyway, but he is young and hot. Yeah. No personality to save his life, though. But Yeah, he wishes, he wishes so hard that that portrait can age instead of him. He's not actually going to explicitly conjure up any demons or devils in the novel. This is mm -hmm. just going to supernaturally, metaphysically happen for him. That the picture does start aging and revealing all of his quote-unquote sins while Dorian stays young and hot for the rest of time and or until his demise. The big thing from Picture of Dorian Gray, so spoiler alert for this over a century old <laughs> novel, that at some point he goes to destroy his portraits. And when he destroys the portraits, it ends up killing him as well, because their lives and souls had been irrevocably linked at that point. You destroy the portrait and you destroy Dorian. Although in Picture of Dorian Gray, it is technically a suicide. Nobody else destroys the portrait. Now, the third thing that we're really drawing from here is the legend of Faust. Dr. Faustus? Not always Dr. Faustus. He goes by many names. The Faust legend cycle. There is a possibly real guy, Johann George Faust. He is a fellow that may have lived circa 1480s to the 1540s. And there are a lot of legends associated with this dude who seems to have been this German alchemist, astrologer, practicing magician, philosopher, also, as far as we can tell, a criminal and a con man. Ah. 
there have been a lot of attempts to try to pin down this exact historical dude because we get different accounts of people who mention him or mention him in newspapers or mention them in their diaries of this guy that seems to be this con man who lived in Germany that maybe attended some universities that like to tell people he was in a pact with the devil. Martin Luther actually is one of the people who apparently allegedly knew him and vouched for him that, yeah, this dude sold his soul to the devil. Wow. So there's this whole really fun, like, historical, quasi-historical angle that has captivated both folklorists and historians. And from this legend cycle that grew out of this possibly criminal con man who died in prison, we get <laughs> these different fascinated literary works based on him and the legend cycles. The first big one is going to be Marlowe, or Christopher Marlowe is going to write a play about him coming out during the Elizabethan tragedy era, generally attributed around 1589 mm. to 92. They're yeah. not quite sure when Marlowe wrote it. Although, fun tie-in with Killer Joe, there are a couple of versions that come out during the Jacobian era, oh, which end with <laughs> Faustus's body parts strewn all over the stage in that classic Jacobian way. It was like many years later, but there was that version of Faust where like he has his girlfriend like, you know, suck a chicken leg. That's how they conjure Satan. That's the lost Quantro yeah. is the, uh, the chicken leg blowjob that Marlowe gets in there. Killer Joe reference. Go listen to that episode if you want to know what we're talking about. <laughs> but the plot here for Marlowe is going to be Faustus being incredibly bored. He wants more knowledge and he does go seeking the devil to strike up a deal with him and sells his soul for a specific period of years, I think 24 years. If Lucifer will give him Mephistopheles, so these are two different dudes in Marlowe, um, Mephistopheles is his little servant and henchman to do his bidding yeah. and tell him all the knowledge of the universe, then the devil can have his soul in 24 years. The end of it is this tragic end where Faustus realizes that it wasn't worth it. And his soul <laughs> ends up damned anyway, but mm -hmm. the overall idea is that no, th this didn't end up being a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. Aren't there versions of that that like ends like they have a happy ending or they some versions change the ending where an angel comes down and helps him out? Sounds like that one's the Faust that we get next, most infamously or famously written by Johann Wolfgang von Goethen. And this was published in 1808. And that is going to be the one where you have the story of Faust, who actually does not go seeking the devil. The devil seeks him out and tries to strike up a deal. And that one is the one that, in the end, the devil tries to take his soul and the angel intervenes and brings him up to a heavenly paradise mm -hmm. instead. Not that he actually was redeemed or redeemable, but it was this whole divine forgiveness yeah. sort of thing. Good triumphing over evil. <laughs> I don't know. Who gives? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah. But these are the things where we get this whole, yeah, like, basically the Faust is going to become cemented as the quintessential make a deal with the devil, sell him your soul in exchange for power and knowledge or fame or beauty or wealth or what have you. That's going to be the important core here. But it is interesting that, yes, Faust has a bunch of different means in which this can happen and play out. Mm -hmm. And so however you want to do it, it does fall within the Faust cycle. So Phantom of the Paradise is going to strongly fall within this Faustian cycle. And now we get to Phantom of the Paradise. And we get a movie that opens... There's so many good things that happen in the start. We get that classic 20th century Fox fanfare, and we have this twisting 
dead bird logo of the logo of death records as we'll come to find we get a little backstory on swan where his, his past a mystery but his works are already legendary and now he's here to create his new xanadu paradise first of all it should be noted rod sterling is going to give us this opening oh voiceover. i didn't even catch that that's beautiful that's yeah so it, it sounds like the beginning of a twilight yeah. zone episode because We've got Rod Sterling's voice coming in to give us this layout. We're kind of familiar with Rod Sterling's voice around here. Yes, exactly. He opens our episodes as well, generally. All right, so yes, we get Rod Sterling introducing us into this world. We get that bright title sequence that's going to flash over this doo-wop band. Although, also first, we're going to get this spinning dead bird Mm -hmm. of a logo. And this is going to be our logo for Death Records. This dead bird is a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek logo that the production designer Jack Fisk came up with because they had tried to use Swan Song Records initially, and Led Zeppelin, who owned Swan Records, sued this production. And so this is the dead bird as a result, because Swan Song didn't take off. Yeah, One of the little bits in this narration I love is that they say, Swan, he's the man that brought Liverpool to America, which is a very direct reference. Like, oh, okay, so he made the Beatles happen. Wow, okay. Yet now he is ready to open the Paradise Theater. And we go to the Paradise Theater, and the opening credits are played. I think that there needs to be a law that opening credits should just be played with doo wop bands in the background because this is all the time so yeah. great. This band is called the Juicy Fruits. <laughs> the people playing the musicians in this film are themselves not professional musicians. They're like a comedy trio that were brought in because they could be trained to just do different styles. And this trio group we see performing here will do different styles throughout the movie. Really, they adapt to it really well. So props to these guys uh, for making that happen. Yes, this doo-wop group, and my God, are they going to bring it. They are doing the little like chicken wings and the faux smoke kind of stuff. Just prowling around the stage, doing some 1950s greaser aesthetic song about the bad boy Eddie. Yeah, who, in order to get his family more money, decided he would kill himself to make his record sales increase and thus ensure his sister would be financially secure. It is such a, oh God, just wild stuff. It's the kind of stuff that, like, yeah, these songs are made for. The theme of this movie, in part is the idea that Swan is always looking for that next best sound and what is next in music. He's been on the pulse of music producing for a while now, as we got from that intro. And here in 1974, we're listening to what seems like this very 50s greaser doo-wop band. That actually is going to be apropos of the time, this 50s revival in music that happened in the 70s. But this here is a reference to that, and specifically the band The Shananas. Are you familiar with The Shananas? I've heard the name, and I've probably heard some of their music, but I'm not super familiar with them. Yeah, so The Shananas were a group that actually gained popularity during Woodstock, because they were friends with Jimi Hendrix, and they performed at Woodstock. They were a 1950s-based performance nostalgia band Mm -hmm. that formed in 1969 and then performed at Woodstock, and they pretty much just did covers of 1950s songs. 
And they would look like this, actually. They would wear a lot of gold lacrimé and have the little pompadour hairstyles and lots of grease and stuff. And so they were a retro 50s nostalgia band that would later go on to host a syndicated variety series about 1950s nostalgia music throughout the 70s. Oh, boy. Yeah. And they wanted to get the Shananas initially to play these people before they hired the comedy troupe. I learned in the director's commentaries in prep for this, I watched all of the commentaries and interviews that were on the Blu-ray, and De Palma and Paul Williams both mentioned that they tried to get the Shananas initially, but then they were like, nah, we don't want to wink at the camera that much uh, at the time, so enough. let's yeah. get these comedy people. Right on, but, yeah. Well, their song having been completed, everyone, I love that everyone stops the song immediately, looks up kind of at this raised platform private box. Someone is behind a mirror, and we just see these two gloved hands come together and just slowly start clapping. Yes, he's a dictator of taste, really, and everybody has to look to this white-gloved figure to know, do we approve? Yep. And White Gloves approves. And thank God. Apparently there were some clear references to specific record label producers. They softened those a little bit, but they had some people in mind when writing this film. (laughs) Yeah, I I kept seeing the name Phil Spector brought up when I was researching this film. Yeah, that's the one, apparently, so Uh, I don't know. And do you want to contextualize who Phil Spector is? Well, he was a record producer like kind of around the time that this film was being made in the 60s and 70s. And he was more or less known as like this powerhouse guy who got shit done, but did it in really shady ways. Yes. And we're going to get a little bit of his shadow here with Swan. We get a now uh, a little story from this man with a bulldog face who we'll, we'll learn is named Philbin. My notes just say, whoa, fourth wall break. <laughs> Yeah, Philbin is looking directly at the camera, clearly at the man who was just slow clapping, telling a story about how he's mad that this woman who he trained to be a good singer and performer wants to leave them, but he stops Philbin from talking and says, listen, listen out there. And behind Philbin, as he's been given the story, someone else has been setting up their piano to start playing their set after the Juicy Fruits. And it is our main character, Winslow Leach, playing a song about Faust. Yes. And he is really going extra on this performance. So he's sitting at a piano. His head is thrown back. His eyes are closed. His mouth is gaping open as he's swaying and playing on this piano. And he's kind of given this like the full Billy Joel, but extra. Billy Joel isn't even this Billy Joel. And that's saying something when you're doing a Billy Joel but extra. Good So Lord. imagine that. The camera, we're going to have another kind of moment of Brian De Palma and his camera work. So first he's breaking the fourth wall right off the bat, yep. which is already a little bit sensory assaulting. And then he's going to do this 360 camera sweep around Winslow Leach. What this is actually going to set up, and this is De Palma's comment as well in the commentary that this was a purposeful thing for him, is that he really wanted to show the 360 view around Winslow to show that nobody is listening to him. Yeah, People are walking around him. They're not even like looking in his direction as they walk by him. No one seems to give a shit about him. 
And so that 360 shot is a nice way to show that. And so yeah. that's another thing we'll be pointing out throughout is De Palma often talks himself about how much he tries to visualize a space before he films it and to try to find ways that the camera and the camera work can become part of that narrative. Yeah, okay. We see that right here. What I really like about this is that, as you just said, no one is watching Winslow, but Swan is listening to him very carefully and just says, that's it. That's the music we're going to use to open the paradise. This is the shit of the future. Philbin, his like goon, just says, like, Wait, this guy, you want him? No, no, not him, his music. And this really is a great, interesting comment on the nature of commercial music, because Swan understands, like, yeah, this is really good music, but Winslow has the least commercial look. Yeah, it's like, we don't want this weirdo, but we want his talent. Yes. So he's going to have fourth wall break go and talk to Winslow. Another little fun detail. Winslow Leach is named after Brian De Palma's mentor in graduate school, whose name is Wilford Leach. Oh, <laughs> fun. He's a drama teacher at Sarah Lawrence where De Palma did his theater grad work. Very nice. He sends Philbin off to talk to Winslow, and like now they're back in a storage room I can, somewhere else in the Paradise Theater. And he says, like, yeah, hey, Winslow, uh, you know, Swan, he really likes your stuff. You got some tapes? Uh, give us some uh, some upbeat numbers. And Winslow's like, you don't get me, man. I don't have tapes. I have a 200 to 300-page cantata, which cantata is it's a type of opera, I guess you could say. Uh, but it's the least pop song thing ever. Like, he, this guy is asking him to give him a two-and-a-half to three-minute tape of an upbeat song, and he's like, N no, no, no. I all I have here is like, this multi-hour thing about Faust, who Philbin doesn't even know who Faust is. We have to get like a very broad-stroke explanation. Well, Faust, he was a German magician who sold his soul to the devil. Philbin just doesn't give a shit. He's like, kid, oh, this is, what is this, school time? I got a plane to catch. Come on. Don't worry. The Juicy Fruits are really going to like your sound. They're going to do good with it. And Winslow goes from 0 to 10 on the rage scale here, where he's like, No! They're not gonna touch it, those goddamn 52 wop sons of bitches! Like, yeah, also fuck the Juicy Fruits! Nearly. Yeah, he throws okay. Philbin against the wall, sounds like he breaks a few things in the process, he's like, Okay, okay, they won't sing it! Don't worry, buddy! And then immediately he goes back to sweet little Winslow Leach and is like, I'm... I'm sorry, I don't know what came over me. Yeah. And the audience is like, we do, Winslow Leach. This mm. is... Chekhov's rage. <laughs> this yeah. is going to come back. <laughs> and Philbin just says, look, kid, uh, I think that Swan's going to produce your first album. Really? Cool. Also, the height difference is amazing yeah, in this I scene. Yeah, I figured that Philbin was a bigger guy when you first see him, but then he's standing next to Winslow, and he's like a foot and a half shorter than him. I'm like, wow, this... Philbin is a stout but wee fellow. Yes, well, also, Bill Finley, the guy who's playing Winslow, is 6'4", oh, so he's okay. a tall dude, Yeah. but yeah, somehow this can bind. We've got this guy that's just coming up maybe mid-torso range, <laughs> and the camera's embracing this. Yeah. It's really great that we just have this frame shot where we can tell that Winslow is just towering over his environment. Very true. But yes, one month later goes by, Winslow goes to Death Records to see, like, Hey, what's the deal? Hey, hi, talks to the secretary. I'm here because Mr. Swan said he'd be uh, producing my first album. It's been a month now. Do you know anything? Secretary says, yeah, let me check a few things. Looks through a file, finds his name, and there's just nothing is written except for, like, this big label that says, never to be seen. 
<laughs> she's also wearing some fierce gloves. So mm. she's going to be wearing some black gloves that go up to about her elbow. And she's just scanning down this really beautiful index card system yeah. of stacked index cards where just the names are showing. And those names are also all going to be actual musical artists okay. that are apparently being represented. Nice. Barbara Streisand was on the list. Alice Cooper, Chris Christopherson. <laughs> Chris Christopherson. Yeah. How'd they land him? My God. Talking about deep dives. So, (laughs) yeah, they have this list and then Winslow Leach is on it, but he gets chucked out by security because he's not to be contacted. No, but he waits for hours and sees a car leave that he assumes is Swan's, grabs a taxi, says, like, follow that car. And they follow the car to Swan's house, which later on in the movie we find out is called Swan Hinge. Like, Swan Hinge. Nice. Yes. So this music is going to start up. This extra diegetic music. Never thought I'd get to meet the devil. Yeah, it's never thought I'd meet the devil. Never thought I'd see him face to face as he's going up <laughs> to this mansion. It's very on point. This mansion, this gothic wonder, is the Greystone Mansion at AFI. Oh, okay. The American Film Institute in Los Angeles. This Mm. is what this mansion is and where it's from. And he's going to go into this mansion. It reminded me simultaneously of some of the haunted houses that will contemporarily set up in old warehouses meets American Idol. So when you go and you wait (laughs) for a haunted house to begin in the entrance of a mansion and there's just these lines because there's something a little bit old and dusty about the parts of this mansion because we've got the wood paneling on the walls but then that checkered black and white floor pattern, it stands out. And all of these women are just going to be standing on the staircase waiting in line and they're all practicing their vocal warm-ups. And it's this great discordant mash and mix of sound. Because none of them have any tone whatsoever. And it's just like, ah, never thought, never thought, never, me the devil, me the devil. It's a really great mm. sound mixing moment because he's going to walk through this environment. We're actually mm. going to kind of get the different patches of sound as he moves through them and they do kind of come through different speakers and different parts of the track so it's a nice sound mix it's perfect because when we finally hear the correct voice it's so jarring but in a good way because now next we hear phoenix singing phoenix is the closest thing to a christine in this film and she's singing it well her voice rising above the ashes of the others oh uh good on this movie for knowing phoenix things but yeah Winslow hears her, goes up, and he's like, whoa, okay, yeah, yeah, you've got it right. And he kind of begins coaching her a little bit, which I think you could say is a nod to the novel as well, because we find out that the Phantom, who is not really ever seen too much in the book, he's always like off in the shadows somewhere, but we find out he was coaching Christine unbeknownst to anyone else. So this idea that Winslow, who is going to become the Phantom later on, is coaching the Christine proxy or whatever in this movie that's uh, yeah okay okay that's kind of like book like a little bit yeah. there he says like yeah i really like what you're doing there and she says like, yeah do you think so i mean yeah i want to help you sing uh you're not just saying that to be nice are you and uh, he says like my favorite line from the movie which is i would never let my personal desires influence my aesthetic judgment uh winslow also finds out that apparently swan is going to use his faust cantata 
to open the Paradise Theater, which he seems like pretty happy about. He's like, I hadn't heard about that. I should really talk to him because, you know, obviously he's going to want me to sing it. The girls are brought in to audition. They're really filed in very quickly. Winslow's not allowed to go into the back room just yet. Uh, Phoenix goes in, and she's only in the room very briefly. We get this shot of, I didn't realize this the first time, but it's Philbin in there, and he just practically jumps on Phoenix. The doors close. Yeah, she just gets pushed down onto that couch, and people just kind of swarm over her, and you're like, holy shit, casting couch. Yeah, they are not fucking around with what's going on here. Winslow is at the door listening, and Phoenix runs out, like, screaming and crying, just like, God damn it, I don't want to do it that way. I just want to sing. Like, that's her core desire, is she just wants to sing so badly for people. And Winslow is a little callous to all this, because as she's walking out, she's like, they're trying to force themselves on me. I can't do this. And Winslow asks her, well, did you tell them who I am? Like Everyone has their one track thing that they want to do. <laughs> the dudes in the casting room, they just want to get some. This chick just wants to sing, and Winslow just wants to be heard. Yeah, you know? that's how it goes. Some goons come out of the casting couch room. These guys are like thugs dressed in denim, and they have like that football player paint on their cheeks. The anti-glare. The anti-glare stuff, yeah. I don't know why they have it, but... You know, hey, it's a choice. They made it. They also have death written across the back of their (laughs) denim jackets. They're the death squad, really. Well, they try to throw uh, Winslow out, but Winslow, he's a sneaky fellow because he gets in to the orgy room. Okay, so this orgy, this beautiful harem scene. Oh, on a bed, I want this bed, by the way. This is just a gigantic round bed. Yes, it's a gigantic circular mattress with silk sheets, and we're going to get this at just a very lightly canted down shot so that we get this entire round bed in the frame. And then there's just going to be a pile of women and Winslow, but a pile of women that are in various forms of red, pink, and peach textured clothing, mostly silk and sateen fabrics, but a mix of stuff. And they're all just going to be piled over each other and moving over each other. And the ones that are in the know are kind of pointing up to the ceiling with this camera to just sort of say that your audition's already started. He likes to watch and he likes women with women. I like women with women too. And this is a clearly 80-yard scene when you it's watch for it. not just that it's 80-yard automatic dialogue replacement, as it's called. They're dubbed seemingly all by the same person because they yep. all sound exactly alike. And I couldn't really tell if that was a deliberate choice. It makes sense as a deliberate choice on the surface what the purpose of like them auditioning is to see who has the best voice. But when you dub them all with the same voice... That doesn't matter, so it really just breaks down that they're just there to fuck. They're all replaceable. I will say that it is all one woman. That woman is Betty Buckley, and she is going to go on to play the gym teacher in Brian De Palma's next film, Carrie. Yeah, she is. Thank you, Betty Buckley. She's awesome in Carrie. So, yeah, that's it's nice to know that she had a hand in this, too. So that's really cool. Sissy Spacek, interestingly enough, our titular Carrie was the set dresser on this film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's married to Jack Fisk, the production designer. 
But that was how Brian De Palma found her and cast her as Carrie was because she was dressing the sets and helping with some of the costumes. So she dressed these people and then the gym teacher ADR'd them. Wow. This movie is the gift that keeps on giving. But yeah, then we have little Winslow Leach on the bed. Mm-hmm. There he is. And then Swan is going to enter the scene in the most dramatic, amazing entrance oh in cinematic God. history. A mirror door opens up into a red room of some sort with fog coming out of it. All, all the women, are their hands going out to him like, Swan, Swan, Swan. There's dramatic music playing. It's operatic organ music. Oh, <laughs> Very phantom. Crazy. But so he comes out and reveals himself and we get Paul Williams. Paul motherfucking Williams. So Paul Williams, I did not recognize this as Paul Williams the entirety of the film <laughs> until because so Paul Williams is a very gifted songwriter and composer. He also acts from time to time, but his yeah. primary career is as a musician and songwriter. He is going to write a variety of things throughout his career from a lot of the Carpenters songs to the Muppet songs. He wrote the like, Rainbow just... Connection. Motherfucker wrote the Rainbow Connection. Man, when you write for the Muppets, you have arrived. So he was asked to do the music for this movie, and he initially was not cast to play Swan, but eventually stepped in as Swan. Mm -hmm. And he does not look anything like Paul Williams here. He looks a little bit to me like Ricky Gervais mixed with Kiefer Sutherland in a weird way. Like, I don't know how, but that's what's happening. Which neither of those people look like Paul Williams. So I don't know how this magic happened. It is fascinating, yes. But he arrives and he's here to enjoy the ladies. Meanwhile, Winslow gets kicked out and gets framed yes. for drugs. Two officers see him on the ground and they say like, Oh, look, Swan said you'd have this on you and... They pull heroin out of his bag. It's a very deliberate setup. Cut to... An amazing cut, because yeah. we get, do you know how long you get for yeah. pushing in this town? Cut to life. <laughs> yeah, and the shot is so crazy, because it's like this black void of a giant American flag, the judge at his desk hitting the gavel, and Winslow turning around looking right down the barrel of the camera and in the most dramatic, bug-eyed way possible, just screaming out... But it wasn't me! I was framed! Swan stole my music! Yes. It's, oh, it's so hardcore. He did, buddy. He did. God, it's just crazy. But he gets thrown into prison, and this prison, Sing Sing, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> it's called... Uh, no, I can't. I mean, to be fair, that is an actual prison, but yes, <laughs> it's theming for the movie itself. He's going to get thrown in. And he's also going to get selected to be part of an experimental prison yeah. hygiene experiment yeah. where they're going to remove all of his teeth because teeth are a source of infection and they're going to replace them with metal ones. Yes. Warden has a fixation. It's really strange. He just wants to keep a clean prison, you know, like, what are you going to do? And these teeth that he's going to be given are actual chrome teeth so the effects artist went to a local dentist and got a cast made of bill finley's teeth right and then the dentist who specialized in chrome replacements gave him a cast in chrome to wear throughout the rest of this film so yeah it's a chrome grill it's, it's a cool aesthetic i like it and he now has been in sing sing god damn 
He's been in when prison. When he hears an announcement on the radio. Yeah, after six months, while he's working the Tiddlywinks assembly line, he hears an announcement on the radio that Swan is now going to open the paradise with his latest... Pop cantata opera. Pop cantata opera, Faust. And this just makes our man Winslow snap. And he just begins throwing things around, wrecking shit, proves himself to be the greatest like prison escape artist of all time. He hops in a box. The box goes down a slide, apparently into a truck. He's in the truck. The truck is driving through. It's this awesome, like, invisible cut of the truck pulling away from the prison and now driving down a city street. The box falls out of the truck. Wenzel hops out of the box and immediately runs into death records. Like, yeah. He is not wasting any time whatsoever. Runs in, runs past that secretary that we saw earlier. Some guys try to stop him. They can't. He runs out of there, jumps right through a plexiglass window in the office, like just knocks the plenty of glass right out of its frame, and then breaks into a pressing plant for the records of his opera, Faust. Yes. And so it is a rage rampage. Yeah. And there's some interesting things happening with these scenes. First of all, both the prison and the record press are going to be filmed at the Pressman Toy Factory in New York. So they reappropriate this place to be both of those locations. Mm-hmm. And when he is running through the record production house, this is where we get the most affected scene of the lawsuits with Led Zeppelin. So Led Zeppelin had initially sued for the rights to their Swan records mm-hmm. and De Palma not wanting to deal with it was like, okay, fine, we will take out the places where it says Swan song records, which happens to be all over this building. And so we're going to get a very choppy sequence as he's running through this building. And mm. that's one of the main reasons why is because there were some places that they just could not optically print over the Swan song label. You will also, if you're looking for it, if you look above the door when he runs in and you look at the desk and the podium, you can see distinct lines of optical printing to just white out Mm. where it used to say Swan Salon records. So do you want to explain what optical printing is a little bit? Optical printing is a, it's an interesting process. Just to give you a little base here, we say optical printing, also known as contact printing. This is like a thing in film where you have your strips of celluloid. So obviously this is in the digital age. This is not a thing anymore. Don't have to worry about it. But Contact printing is when you have two pieces of film, they are pressed together, and the light is shown through your first film print, if you're making a copy of it, and that will you know shine through the film that's pressed up against, and you get a one-to-one replication. In optical printing, the original film is shown through another lens, and that image is focused onto a new piece of film, that way you can control the size and shape of the image that you're shining onto the new piece of film and determine, okay, I want to put this part of the image here and you can mask out certain parts as you do. And it has to be very precise, very fine-tuned because this is 35 millimeter film. So at any given point, you are making adjustments in tenths of a millimeter. So it's a very tricky process. The machines that had to do this had to be very precision-based and really just was a very tricky thing to do. And unless you were rocking really expensive equipment, the results could be 
a little janky looking. And that's kind of what happened in this movie, because when we have these like white rectangles with that dead bird on them, uh, <laughs> optically printed onto scenes, it's really obvious uh, mm -hmm. what's happening and it sticks out like a sore thumb. So just a, a thing to watch for is that optical printing, those, mm. those dead bird stamps, yeah, where, like, the death of the birds. But we also have here, yeah, him running through this choppy scene. I know this is Brian De Palma's least favorite scene because of how choppy it ended up having to be. Like, mm. it, it really bothered him in the interviews. We're going to get into this printing press. He's going to trip. He's going to fall into it and get pressed with the record. This also was an actual press that they used. Finley was very concerned about using this press because he's like, are you sure it's not going to smush me? And they're uh, like, nah, we're going to get chalks and we're going to put them in there and it's not going to be strong enough to break them. Stop from going all the way. It's cool. Don't worry. Yeah, You're good. It was strong enough to break them. Um, so <laughs> it broke through the chalks and then Finley at the last moment was able to pull himself out of that machine before it injured him. Yeah. Then we're going to get a scene that jumps a little bit because he is stumbling to the river and he's going to jump into the river and he appears shot. Mm -hmm. There is an edited or deleted scene that you can see on the Blu-ray where he pulls out of this press. He's got the little bits of the record or whatever embedded in his cheek. Oh, wow. And a security guard sees him and shoots him. And oh. so he does get shot. Okay. And De Palma in interviews is like, I don't know, it's just clear to me that, you know, he pulls out of the press and he's stumbling to the river like he got shot by someone at some point or something. Like, he's just like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's already been disfigured by a record press. You don't need to add the gunfire into that. The dude's fucked up enough as it is. Yeah, and... I'm just, like, thinking as he rolls into this river, like, oh, God, that water has got to be so dirty. And he's got those open wounds on uh, his face and his throat. Like, that would not be my first choice to just Lord. roll into that East River. Yeah. But he does. And then we're going to get a newspaper shot that is going to announce both the opening of the Paradise on its front page and then a tiny little article down at the corner of the bottom is going to say, also, there's this dude named Winslow Leach who escaped prison and then was shot by security and seemed to die in the river. His yeah. body wasn't recovered. Right. So he did. And still, yeah. you know, it's a little piece, but it's still on the front page of the paper. So, hey, you know, good on yeah. him. You know, he attracted I mean, some he, attention. he did escape Sing Sing, you know. I do <laughs> think it was a fun way of introducing Sing some extra exposition into the narrative and mm -hmm. this was text that works in the way that the donnie darko director's cut introduces text that doesn't work because <laughs> it's all weird and overlaid this is yeah. a moment where text actually does give us a really cool moment of exposition well, now we have a, p a point of view shot of winslow walking uh, stumbling around so there are people standing around the paradise who are like look at him they look at the camera and thus at winslow and are terrified like oh good lord and they run off. Uh, Winslow is sneaking up into the wardrobe, and he's doing the Darth Vader breath three years before Darth Vader would do it, which I kind of yeah. love. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, this movie is Rocky Horror before Rocky Horror. This movie is well, Darth Vader breathing before yeah. Darth Vader breathing. This movie is Velvet Goldmine way before Velvet Goldmine. Oh, very true. I do th I'm do. i pretty sure that Richard O'Brien had written a Rocky Horror Picture Show before this movie came out, so we don't want to suggest that he ripped off anything like no, that. No, but, but I mean, aesthetically, oh, like, yeah, definitely. this movie is tapping into a certain vaudevillian camp aesthetic that is going to develop 
in avant-garde theater in the later half of the 70s before any of the ones we really know about yes. happen. So he heads up into wardrobe, and that's where he finds the helmet that we'll see him in later on. Wait, hold on. I got to break down this POV scene. Okay, go ahead. It's important. Take us there. Take us through this POV scene. What's going on here? He's going to crawl out of this river doing the Darth Vader breath, and... (sighs) This movie was shot in three primary state locations, Los Angeles, New York, and Texas. Texas is going to be the big one. Here, we actually get pretty much all of them composited into a shot, and it's really (laughs) cool. So he's going to climb out of the river, and we're going to get this head-on shot of the city center in New York City. So we get the front of this sort of downtown New York City shot. Okay. And then he's going to walk around the side of the building to those bikers that are terrified of him. And suddenly we are in the back of the Brooklyn Academy. So those are two separate buildings that we get this seamless move right. to around the side of the building, Brooklyn Academy. Respect. Still in New York. And then... As we pan over further, we're going to get like a slight little moment where we pass in front of a brick wall to the door, which is the Majestic Theater in Dallas. And so he's going to go into the Majestic Theater. And this is going to be consistent that the interior shots from now on inside of the theater are going to be the Majestic in Texas. And then the exterior shots around the building are going to be the Brooklyn Academy in New York. So that's just fun because it's so seamless that those are three different locations that just seem almost like a tracking shot, but are in entirely different states. Techniques and that's really that cool. Catherine Bigelow would later completely steal for Strange Days. Yes, that... the thief now. I know. De Palma is certainly not the first one to do this, but it's really cool to point it out here, especially if you are familiar with one or more of these locations, because it looks like the back of the Brooklyn Academy. This looks like the Majestic Theater. They're not hiding those things. And that's what's cool. Then, yeah, he's going to walk up the steps here, and these walls are going to be this really rich blood orange with these electric cotton candy pink accents around the trims and the railing. And it's such an assault on the senses. It's beautiful, the the interior of this. The walls also are going to look a little wet. A lot of the sets are going to look a little wet. And I learned from the commentary this is because... They were a little wet that Fisk and his wife, Sissy Spacek, spent late nights, sometimes till dawn, painting the sets because they were on a time crunch. And so the actors had to be careful not to touch the walls because (laughs) the paint was still wet. And then, yes, he's going to go into the dressing room. And now now you can talk about his costume. He gets his costume. He gets his costume. That's yeah. what he, said. All right. <laughs> he, he sneaks through wardrobe and he just pulls out like a, a black cape. And then he also sees this metallic bird-like helmet. He puts it on and then we get into what life is really all about. Carburetors, man. Carburetors. Oh my God, this fucking scene. There are just so many scenes with so many beautiful things going on. And this has so many things going on in it. So this is a whole sequence that is a split screen sequence left and right, two cells on the screen, and they are continuous shots, and Brian De Palma is known for his split-screen work. Yeah, he is. This sequence is, yeah, just a two-shot composite. This is also, like, where optical printing comes into play as well. This is where you would have had to run the film twice, and you have to, like, reload the original shot that you got into the optical printer each time 
run like the new film twice so you can like print these things together. It was like really difficult to do back in the day and like nowadays I can grab my iPhone and film two things outside and make a split screen sequence. That's where we are today. But what's happening here is that we have a shot like on the right side of the screen. We have a shot, a wide shot of the stage. And then the left side of the screen, we have a shot of this car, this like prop stage car. And Winslow runs up and has dynamite, turns a clock, and it's a very clear homage to uh, Orson Welles' film, Touch of Evil. He puts these sticks of dynamite like wired up to a clock into the trunk of the stage car, runs off. There are actors who are hopping onto the car. They're getting ready to do like a rehearsal. Swan is out in his theater box, like watching things go on. Philbin is there. He's telling them to get in place. One of the singers is feeling weird. He's she's like, I keep hearing a ticking. I don't know what that is. Well, also his astrology sign for the day is telling him that like he shouldn't be there because yeah. like the other guy's like a Leo or something, so he should be safe. Yeah, well, Leos, we're we're all good, man. You don't, you don't have to worry about us. But this is all happening while the car itself is being slowly pushed out onto the stage. And so we have these different angles of it, and it's continuous action, the same action. It's not two different takes. There were two cameras running at the same time during this scene, capturing the action simultaneously. So we have, like, very real dual-angle action going for what's happening here. And what's amazing about this is that because they have these two cameras running, they couldn't use boom microphones like they normally would to capture the sound. So the actors had to have remote microphones on, but the remote microphones couldn't broadcast the sound very far. So the people who had the receivers for it had to be scrambling around unseen underneath the set to try and get the sound recorded and captured correctly. So it's like this crazy ballet of action going on to get this one continuous take from two different angles. So finally, the car gets out there. We've heard this ticking, continuing, continuing. One of the angles stays on the car. The other angle pans up to Winslow. Now in full, uh, we see the Phantom outfit, you know, like full on for the first time where he has the, this metallic helmet that only has one eye. His face is now painted black, so his, like, already gigantic eye appears even more bugged out and huge. Camera pans over across the theater to the other side where Swan realizes that Winslow's up to something, looks back, and the car explodes. And scene. Holy shit, there was so much going on there. My god. And we also, action-wise, going on here, we have our Juicy Fruits back <laughs> and... They have transformed because they are no longer a 50s greasers duo-out band. They are a Beach Boys-style West Coast Yeah, we mentioned carburetors, band. and it's a song about carburetors. <laughs> it's a song about carburetors. Girls are dancing in bikinis, and they, instead of having their slick back hair in the pompadours, they now all have on these really great, and by great I mean terrible, and thus I mean great, blonde wigs. <laughs> All of them are wearing blonde wigs mm. to pull off this new Beach Boys aesthetic that they are trying to emulate. Oh, and it's really great because mm. none of it looks natural. Some of them you can actually see their natural hair underneath the wig <laughs> because they aren't actually like they didn't wig cap. I mean, this is a purposeful oh, choice. This God. was not a film mistake. This was just mm -hmm. the and once again, tongue in cheek, making fun of the popular music at the time being these retro nostalgia bands. But 
in a couple of different fashions. Mm -hmm. And we are also going to get this primary song that is sung throughout by these different performers in different styles. So we're going to get the little Faustian song that Winslow wrote, but we're going to get it in different patches here because mixed in with the carburetors are actually some of Winslow's themes and lyrics, (laughs) but just beach boyified. Right. So this is just like why this film is so delightful is it's just delightful scene after delightful scene. Uh, it's so good. Yeah. After Swan has decided to check things out, he watches security footage of the explosion and sees the like, oh, this asshole is here now. Phantom confronts Swan, but can't talk. And Swan just says like, hey, what have you done to yourself? You've disfigured your face and your voice. I can help you create again. I can give you that Winslow. Come and see me. Tomorrow, and we will have auditions your way, Winslow. You'll see. And so yes. the next day, we have auditions happening where Winslow and Swan are way up in the box, the theater box, in the shadows, watching auditions go down. And we get the return of Phoenix. She's back now. Yeah, she's back, as is like the American Idol style type of auditions where people are just lined up waiting to sing and they start, and it's just like, no, next. Yeah. You're terrible. You bore me. Go. She approaches Philbin, who seems to have forgotten Phoenix altogether. Just like, oh, forgot the woman that he tried to assault earlier in the film because... Well, I mean, that tracks. It seems yeah. like that was sort of a factory line of assault. So. Yeah. It, it's that makes disgusting, sense. but it is. there's some truth to power uh, being spoken there. Once again, Phil Spector. What's up, buddy? Hey! Oh, just we're all back around there. And she gets to the front of it. It's her turn. And she just asks Philbin, do I actually get to sing this time? Philbin, there's something very telling here where he says, what, are you a singer? Yeah, I'm a singer. Well, we don't want singers. We want screamers. Just basically saying, we do not give a shit about any objective talent you might have. You're just here to make noise, almost. She gets her chance to sing. One thing I do like, I guess, about Phoenix as a character, because I have a huge pet peeve for the character trope of this person would be so good at X if only they could Y, right? Like, they'd be so great as a musical performer if only they could get over their stage fright Uh. or whatever. And you're like, actually, a huge part of performing on stage is not being afraid of the stage. So no, she wouldn't be a great stage performer if she can't be on a stage. Like that kind of shit drives me nuts. Mm -hmm. But the thing with Phoenix here is she's baller enough to kind of say, she doesn't have any of that, right? She's like, no, I'm a singer. I'm good at it. I'm better than anybody else. Like try me, bitch. Mm -hmm. So I believe her. I believe that she's ready to sing on a stage. She begins to walk off and Swan gets in the microphone and says, Phoenix, do you want to sing? Yeah, more than anything. What would you be willing to give me to sing? Will you give me your voice? She's like, watch me. Grabs the microphone, nods the band, like just takes command of the stage immediately and begins to sing this song. And her singing is so fascinating to me. It kind of reminds me of Stevie Nicks. It's a carbon copy of Karen Carpenter to me. I had to look up and see if Karen Carpenter had actually vocally dubbed or provided the vocals for this. But no, it's, it's Harper. It's, it's fascinating. Like, I've seen interviews with Jessica Harper where she described the process of like how she would sing this stuff. And she said that she was singing it to herself prior to auditioning for a sing. And apparently the De Palma and company heard her singing it to herself. Then she came on and started singing it like much louder and bigger. They're like, no, 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 no. Sing it like you just did. Sing it to yourself. 
And she did it that way, and that's kind of what we get in the movie. She is very much singing the song to herself in an interesting way. It's like almost a sublime style of singing, and Jessica Harper's range is definitely not like soprano. It's like more low, almost like high tenor, I'd say. Yeah, she has a very, very low range, and like Karen Carpenter, she has a certain thing that she's doing with her vowels there's probably a name for it in music theory i do not know what it's called but she's creating so much space in like the back of her throat like it's almost like she relaxes Mm. her soft palate and swallows the vowels yeah yeah very interesting and karen carpenter that was like her style okay and she also has karen carpenter's exact range it seems Mm. so that was why i was like is, is this Karen Carpenter? But no, I looked it up and it is Jessica Harper. Fun trivia fact about Jessica Harper. We would go on to hear her sing again in Richard O'Brien. Yeah. When he created a sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show, she's going to play replacement Janet. Also, Janet by, by sequel, you mean like Rocky Horror Picture Show 2, right? That That's what the sequel was to Rocky Horror Picture Show? Was Rock- No, it was called Shock Treatment, and we're going to do it on this podcast at some point. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, but it's like, you know, a movie where we got like, you know, Frankenfurter back and like all the characters, like the same actors who were in the first movie are, are back in the second movie, right? That's... That was what... No, Brad and Janet are going to go back home and find that their hometown has been transformed into a reality TV show. Obviously, like, keep up. <laughs> but that, that's not the movie we're doing, so yeah. neither here nor there, but a fun fact nonetheless. Yes. So she's going to perform, she's going to do great, she's going to blow them all away, and Swan's going to be like, okay, I can maybe work with this. Yeah. And so he's going to go seek out Winslow aka the bird phantom or whatever because he's got a very owlish bird-like mask that he's put on yes he's now fixing his voice in this recording room and the first time i saw this i kept thinking of like 1950s sci-fi movies where you just have like a wash of panels and like things are lighting up and beeping for like absolutely no reason it's just you know random knobs everywhere just for the sake of aesthetics or whatever but this room is a real thing this room every instrument and knob that you see on the walls has a purpose this is part of a gigantic uh, synthesizer called tonto so it is the record plant at the Mm. time this was in los angeles still is where they shot this scene it is a circular dome (laughs) specialized custom-made recording studio it is gorgeous it is cool it is weird and we're gonna get shots both inside of it and we're gonna get shots from the outside with Winslow still sitting in this recording pod in the glass doors yeah. and Swan kind of looking in from outside and the the carpeting that sort of leads up to it. This is now, I believe, part of the permanent exhibit at the National Music Center in Calgary, Alberta. So it's up in Canada, but you can still schedule to use it to record stuff. So wow. I do believe it's still operational. It's gorgeous it's really cool it is it's just super badass Uh, swan is listening to winslow try to sing like his song from earlier and his voice is like he's twisting knobs turning things like muttering to himself filters dolby (laughs) while he's in here mixing his voice it is going to sound raspy at first, but it's going to sound cool. It sounds a little bit like some sort of proto-horror rock. Mm-hmm. And as he tweaks it, it becomes a little bit more humanized. It's it's like this OG auto-tune situation yeah. where it's like slowly getting back into tune. And 
what we get spilling out of these speakers all of a sudden is actually Paul Williams <laughs> slash Swan's voice. And so Swan is going to say, perfect. Ah, perfection. Yes. <laughs> you just made your own voice happen, you sneaky son of a bitch. That's kind of hilarious. Yeah. And both Brian De Palma and Paul Williams thought that would be a hilarious kind of in and fitting like an in-joke, but also fitting for mm. the character of Swan that he would tweak somebody's voice to sound like his, if that's, you know, the aesthetic standard that yeah. he's going for, of course, is going to be himself. So that's pretty fun. Swan heads into the room where the Phantom has been composing, unplugs it, and we get to a point where Phantom now, he can now talk uh, with this box attached to his chest, but it's a very robotic voice. He's like, speak to me, Winslow. Phoenix. Try that again. Phoenix. It's like good for you, buddy. You can talk now. Very well, Winslow. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to rewrite your cantata for Phoenix in a week. Which, like, god damn, that's a pretty tall order, dude. You're asking him to rewrite 300 pages of music in a week. He can do it, though, with the power of love and drugs. <laughs> that's uh, how he does it there. And we now have a contract to sign. This gigantic several hundred pages contract that's like a phone book thick it's floppy it's tied together by yarn it's handwritten in calligraphy and you're like this looks like the industry standard yes and <laughs> he's like well, a party of the third party and the second party shall be privy to the third he like goes through like all this legalese he's like what does that mean oh that's just a transportation clause there's nothing to worry about <laughs> don't worry about it and we get to, I think, one of the big Faustian moments of this where he says, like, you need to sign this in blood. That is the only thing worthwhile to me. That's something from Faust, right? He always signed the contract in blood. In certain forms okay. of Faust. Yeah. So it's definitely going to be in the Marlowe. Okay, the that's what I yeah. thought that was. Okay, good. And to we know. all know that you care way more about the Marlowe. I know, I know, whatever. Well, we have that. We have a scene where Swan is watching a recording. We don't see the recording, but he's watching a recording of what just happened. But his voice sounds much more different in this recording. Instead of, you have to sign in blood, Winslow. It's the only thing that has any worth to me. We hear, you have to sign in blood, Winslow. It's the only thing that has any worth to me. Yeah, it's a cool way of letting us know that... Something's up if here. If you didn't know that Swan might be a little different, <laughs> this is going to increase those suspicions. So, yes, very true. We have this awesome montage. It's such a great, like, a show-don't-tell thing with time because we see Winslow lighting this gigantic red candle, like one of those big, thick ones. And then we have, you know, him writing, notes are flying by the screen, papers are piling up, we see him, like, dreaming of Phoenix, on and on and on. And then, like, after all that, we see the candle again, and it is, like, it's done. Like, that's how long this has all been going on. Swan has come by to pick up the pages, he's looking at them, and Paul Williams just has, like, the most devilish grin in his face when he's looking at the pages and just says, Tasty, Winslow. Tasty. Yes. At different points, he's going to come in with his little briefcase and open it, and it's just going to be a briefcase of drugs <laughs> and little pharmaceutical bottles. It's like, here, have some breakfast, and he's going to feed him some pills. And this up. is fast-forwarding a little bit, but by the end, we're going to get this great shot of just the paper 
of the musical notes with all of these different little <laughs> like, rainbow pills yeah. all over it and him just passed out and Swan's just going to come in there and just mm. pull those pages out from underneath his passed out face and pills and that's going to be that. Yes. Winslow is like, he's happy to take these pills because when Swan told him like rewrite your cantata in a week for Phoenix, Winslow's, his reaction is just like, I got this. I can like, do this, it, man. Yeah. Now we have this another really interesting scene. We're in this black void. The gold dusk. Yes, the black void. Swan is sitting in the middle of this gigantic round desk that looks like a, a huge golden record. And Philbin is sitting off the side, and they're discussing Phoenix. And Swan says, like, no, she's, she's over. She's done with. What? I, I thought you liked her, boss. Oh, I do, Philbin, but you know I abhor perfection in anyone other than myself. Make yeah, her, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. Make her a chorus girl. We need a new sound, something fresh. And he, I think he says something to the effect of, like, you know, the nostalgia throwback thing. That's done. We're, we got to move on from that. And so we have this fascinating sequence done in one continuous take where I think that this is really meant to be more representational of Swan's process rather than a diegetic, these people are really here this is really happening kind of thing. I mean, that really is up to interpretation. But what happens is that Swan says, perhaps something a bit more this. And he turns and lights go on to a new group singing for a little bit. And he says, no, no, that's not it. Perhaps something more like this. And the camera keeps moving along and the lights go down in one spot, come back up on another group of people singing. And that continues on and on. And what's fascinating here is that the sound for this was apparently all recorded on scene, like live, and the sound recordist had to crawl underneath the desk, point the microphone at the performers while this is going on, all while being quiet enough that his crawling isn't being picked up by the microphone itself, which sounds really like that. Just record the shit afterwards, man. Like, why do you have to get this live? I don't, I don't know why that was necessary, but goddamn, that's effort. The music that they're gonna go through in this moment are going to be just different types of musical sounds that are popular from at the time, from folk groups to duets to country. Like, there's just going to be a whole bunch of stuff. Each time that the singers or groups appear to sing, they are singing the same song. They're singing this Faust pop cantata, mm -hmm. and they are singing it in a remixed version to sound folk or to sound country or to sound harmonized. It's a fun exercise in showing the different tropes that create certain genres of sound. Right on. And we've kind of picked at that a couple of times, but that was initially what De Palma wanted to do was apparently he was in an elevator once and heard a Muzak version of a Beatles song. Oh, wow. or I think it was a Beatles song, like in an elevator. Ooh. And that <laughs> gave him the Genesis visual thought for this entire film of like just looking at the gradations of how a song can be produced as well as the degradation that happens over time when you're trying to produce it commercially. And so these are all variants of the degraded sound of the pure masterpiece that is Winslow's vision of a pop cantata apparatic future. I dig it. His words, not mine. But we finally land on the character the song sal that winslow or that swan says yes that's it that's the sound and it's 
the sound of beef. <laughs> and I kept thinking, like, well, okay, so we land on skinnier meatloaf singer. Okay. I kept thinking of meatloaf, uh, especially from Rocky Horror when this guy was doing his, his singing. He's kind of a combo of meatloaf and Rocky. Yeah. Really, from Rocky Horror. Very true. Because he's a bodybuilder, he's blonde. But he has this kind of meatloaf vibe. He has just a really just general glam rock vibe mm-hmm. across the board. So he's kind of a glam rock, glitter rock kind of dude. That was a definite style of this time. Yeah, so this was glam rock is going to start in uh, about 1971. It's only going to last until about 1975. But I could see where at the time in 1974, this felt like mm-hmm. the aesthetic of the future. So yeah. this is incredibly contemporary to the movie and when it was written. Now, Beef. Beef is going to be introduced to the world in a press conference that Swan has found the future, and the future is Beef. (laughs) So a few things about this scene. One, this is where the optical printing of the Death Records logo over what was clearly a different logo is really obvious because... There are scenes where we are getting Swan speaking on a podium and the camera is very close to him and the new logo, the white rectangle with the bird on it is just like front and center. It cannot be ignored. It looks completely out of place. So Mm -hmm. there's that. But what's happening here with his costume is very interesting because Swan is dressed like Dr. Caligari from that movie about the guy with the cabinet. The movie about the guy with <laughs> the, the cabinet. cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the German Expressionism film from 1920, and he says, I have found the new sound, and that is beef. And he turns, and there's a coffin standing up next to him, and the coffin opens, and it's exactly the same shot as a moment from Dr. Caligari, where a coffin opens, and a guy who has almost the same kind of makeup as beef does opens his eyes, like, and just seemingly goes wild. Yeah, not going to be our only Cabinet of Dr. Caligari reference, but Mm -hmm. it is one of the best ones, (laughs) one of the most overt moments. That is, yeah, just a German Expressionist film from 1920, incredibly important film. Okay, so Broad Strokes is, it's going to really feature some dark and twisted visual styles, sharp pointed angles, a lot of chiaroscuro, that bright lights, those dark shadows, so really quintessential Expressionist filmmaking. I guess I should also just say that the plot of it is just the story of an insane hypnotist who uses this sleepwalker to commit murders. Yeah. That's kind of fun. Yeah. But why Caligari here, do you think? I I would say, like, equating Swan to Caligari is giving us an idea of the power that Swan has over people. uh, Because he, he himself is seemingly hypnotic. He is the man who says, like, this is popular. This is not popular and has just control over people in a very strange and supernatural way, which I think the connection, the supernatural connection, goes more into Faust and Dorian Gray. Yeah, I guess I could see Beef being like his his little sleepwalking yeah. zombie that he gets to do things, yeah. execute things. In the next few scenes, we'll see moments where Beef seems to argue with Swan in some ways, but Swan just like tells him, like, no, no, you're going to do this. Yeah, comparing Swan to Caligari is, yeah, that works. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm for it. Makes sense. And I'm always down for a good 
-hmm. German Expressionism reference. So who isn't? I'll allow it. Yeah, Uh, we're in the Tonto room again. Uh, This is like where. The, the phantom he has like been composing he's like dead just seemingly dead swan comes in with a briefcase he's like here winslow a bit of breakfast it pick me up and winslow just happily takes the pills like gulp uh will you be completing them on time i don't mean to rush you no no i will be complete like when, like basically the phantom just says like i got this man i am finishing this on time i cannot wait to hear phoenix sing this and swan's just like oh yes Phoenix should should be fantastic in it. (laughs) And so he takes the new pages of music, heads out, and we find out that outside this room that has like a a sliding steel door, there are guys outside of it that have brick and mortar just ready to go. So something's going to (laughs) happen to this doorway. Edgar Allan Poe reference. He got walled up, but he just punches his way out. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Back into the Paradise Theater, where Beef is practicing. Beef is saying that the notes are too high, and Swan just says, well, then lower them. Sing it at your own range. And so he does. Uh, he does we do a little practice of the song. Uh, Phoenix is a, now about on stage just as a background singer slash dancer, and she is like clearly like, oh, God, this guy just doing this ridiculous shit with the song. We get to the night of the show. Ah, yes. And Finally. Beef is is visited by Winslow. He's yes. visited by our Phantom. And we have, I think, most people will often say that Brian De Palma was very heavily influenced by Alfred Hitchcock. Brian De Palma will also say that he's yes. very heavily influenced by Hitchcock. This is the fair. most clear reference to Hitchcock's works because Beef is, well, one, he's sniffing up a storm of cocaine and goes to take a shower. And the the camera pans around, and it's almost the exact same shot as Psycho. So I actually have the the cues from the original script for okay. this scene. All right, go ahead. He shakes his head, takes out pills, and washes them down with a glass of cold water. He then steps in the running shower, pulls the transparent curtain closed, and proceeds to sing again. Parentheses, audition song, beef version 8. Suddenly, as in Psycho, we see a sinister shape through the shower curtain. It moves slowly, closer to the shower as Beef, in the figure, stands merrily along. (laughs) I don't know what in the figure sings merrily along means, but whatever. The darkened shape stops a few inches from the water-streamed curtain. It raises its hand in which it clutches a long, pedestal-shaped weapon. With a marrow-scraping shriek, it drives the weapon through the curtain straight for Captain Beef's mouth. Captain Beef, oh, apparently. Okay. Captain Beef's mouth. His attempts to cry out are instantly cut off as the weapon, now seen to be a plumber's helper, glues itself to Beef's gasping lips. Winslow, in an insane whisper, never sing my music again. Not here, not anywhere. Do you understand? So, mm-hmm. a couple of things we learned from that. One, Brian De Palma is very well aware that this is a psycho reference. Yeah, I like that Two, like, he just says psycho in the script. That's very nice. Brian De Palma really packs in those stage cues yeah. <laughs> into his screenplays. <laughs> so this uh, screenplay was written by Brian De Palma. Yes. We should throw that out there, too. Initially written with his screenwriting partner, Louisa Rose. She didn't want to sell, apparently, so Brian Palma wrote her patches out of the script. So this is, as it stands in the movie, a Brian De Palma screenplay. All right. Well, yeah, we're just going to kind of just let that one gloss over. They, like, I've, yeah. they, they have their thing, apparently, their history. Beef it takes the message. Outside, 
Philbin is going through the crowd making sure everyone has tickets, and he sees Beef, like, running down the fire escape with suitcase and... Right, like just getting the fuck out of there. And I asked him, like, what the hell is going on? Beef explains, like, no, the Phantom came into the shower and told me he's gonna kill me if I sing his songs. And Philbin's just like, full, you're high. And another line I love is where Beef says, well, hey, man, come on. I know drug real from real real. Yeah, he's like, what do you know about drugs? You just sell them. I take them. Like, <laughs> I know this shit. And I'm a professional. I'm a goddamn professional. So... If I don't want to go out on the stage, it's not because I have stage fright. It's because some crazy haunted phantom from the depths, like, does not want me to go on stage. And so, yeah, he's convinced that this theater is haunted. They convince him, nah, though, you still need to go back out there and perform. Mm -hmm. So for some reason, Beef does, because I guess Beef is the somnibus zombie of our Dr. Caligari. Possibly, yeah. He's our meat puppet, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... He goes back out on stage, and we get yes, we the do. opening performance. Fuck yeah! Oh, I Faust. love this scene so much. So, curtain opens, and the Caligari references are very much more pronounced here, because this set looks like a scene from Captain Dr. Caligari, and our three singers from before, who originally are doo-woppers and are Beach Boy guys, are now... I don't even know how to describe uh, this crew. It looks like Kiss prior to kiss well it also looks like the cabinet of dr caligari posters no oh, there you go yeah that too and they have this awesome opening bit where they're doing their song and they also have guitars that seem to have blades on them and they are seemingly going out to the audience and they're singing about how they need to make the perfect man the perfect performer and they're chopping body parts off of people like you know obviously they're you know performers in the act too but they're chopping body parts off of people and taking them back on stage people are like nurses are sewing everything together the box goes up lightning strikes it and it's i mean again we mentioned rocky horror picture show and this is reminds one a lot of scenes from that I'm movie it's so hardcore because they're creating a man yeah with long legs and a tan, or whatever the <laughs> lyrics are. Blonde hair and a tan, yeah. <laughs> Unlike Rocky, who's going to basically be pieced together from leftover pieces of meatloaf, the singer, <laughs> not necessarily the dish, because he has meatloaf's brain, or whatever, in Rocky. The... <laughs> or whatever. Or part the, of it. Whatever. It's, yeah. <laughs> That's how it describes the plot to Rocky Horror. It's just, it's just whatever, whatever. This guy, Beef, is going to be a composite of all of the body parts that are maitre d' or whoever has just harvested from yeah. the audience so they're stitching them together and they're gonna put them in this little <laughs> so light box cool. and he's gonna come out and his makeup is great it looks like he's stitched together yeah. especially along his torso has this big gash and staples and stitches and he's gonna sing the beef version of the Faust song. Oh, God. Greetings from the other side. And it's spectacular. And it's the first thing I actually ever saw of Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, right on. When I went to go look up the trailer, it was this clip instead. Great and song. Yeah. the beginning of this clip is going to actually be the Phantom holding on to this yes. little vertical pulley uh -huh. as he just gets pulled upwards vertical through the frame. And it's so... It delights me every time. I've mm -hmm. rewatched that I don't know how many times, and it's hilarious every time. Yes. So, so, so good. good. Subtle thing that Beef is doing in his performance. He's very performative here, but also he's like, you can see he's like looking around a little bit. Like, what, what, what was that? What's over there? What, what? Like, he's 
clearly a little nervous that something... He's yeah, he's nervous something might happen. And something does happen. As he sings, the Phantom has a neon lightning bolt that I guess, you know, the wiring on it is not very good because he lets this neon lightning bolt swing and it hits Beef and electrocutes him. And there's an amazing effect here uh, to show like that Beef is like being electrocuted and he's jittering. The image itself seems to be shaking and jittering. I couldn't figure out, like, what is this? Like, what are they doing here? And I had to take it into a video editor to figure this out. Like, going frame by frame, every three frames, the film jumps back a frame. So you'll have, like, frame one, two, oh, okay. three. I was going to ask you, like, what the fuck is happening yeah. here? Because I was hoping you'd know, because I did not take this into a video editor. So... You yeah. did something right for once. That's, that's <laughs> all I'm going to give you. Whatever you'll give me, I guess I have to take. That's just how it goes around here. But what makes this really impressive to me is that, again, you know, like we said with split screen, it's so easy to do that stuff digitally. And an effect like this would be really easy to do digitally today. But back then, they were physically having to cut the film up in these little three-frame segments cut and paste them like over each other to get this effect going and then like rerun that through. There's going to be so many cuts and so much like pasting tape to get the film cut together to make this effect happen. And it must have taken them like ungodly numbers of hours to get like this done so that we can just have this jittery effect that lasts for maybe five seconds of screen time. It's so cool, though. It also seems like it has some sort of strobe light going on at the same time in the background, yeah, lighting-wise. It's, it's a combination of things. It's just, it's just one of those things of, of, like, hardcore filmmaking that I respect so much. Like, so much effort put into, like, creating this thing that they hoped was going to look right. Yeah. Because, again, I can test an effect like this out on my computer and just see, like, does that work? Uh, no, okay, Control-Z, 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 you know, whatever. But if this didn't look right, they had just wasted so much time in film on an effect that didn't land, but it thankfully it does, and it's awesome. Yeah, it is really cool. He's getting electrified by that bolt. And Swan, once again, is like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I took care of you before, uh, but apparently not. So he's like, fine. Everybody is chanting, we want beef, as mm -hmm. he's being dragged off stage. Phoenix has to get pulled out onto stage in her white dress, and she is going to sing this song in the way that Winslow had written it. Correct. This is the way that it was supposed to be heard. Mm -hmm. And she does a nice job. It's yeah. fine. An interesting difference between this movie and the book is that the Phantom never composes anything for Christine. He has composed his own work, Don Juan Triumphant, but it's like a very personal thing, and he never lets anyone else see it, and only Christine ever hear it. But he only wants Christine to just perform it because he just likes her voice a lot more. Whereas here, and in really a lot of interpretations of the Phantom story, the Phantom has composed a thing for this character, be it, you know, Christine in the novel, Phoenix in this movie. It's more um, intimate that way. I, I, I agree. The sexually charged uh, act of creation. I mean, really, if you look at adaptations of the novel, really a lot of movie versions of this improve upon the story in ways that are a bit more compelling, uh, definitely from a cinematic point of view. Um, so, yeah. Oh, it's just an interesting thing I found in my research into this whole phantom stuff. <laughs> no, you're like, I put the time in. I need to talk about it. So 
people are gonna like phoenix yes and swan's like okay yeah i could actually cash this chick in mm-hmm. for something and then we're gonna get this roof shot we're gonna get a look down from the top of the roof we can see the city center sign from the new york city center in the corner of the frame mm-hmm. this is 55th street just randomly uh, in all New York, right. that they're carrying Beef's body yeah. across. The paramedics are. It's all wrapped up in the black death bag, but people are still chanting his name because mm. that was quite a show, right? Death yeah. is a wondrous spectacle. Phantom Winslow is going to pull Phoenix up onto the roof and tell her, hey, bitch, here's the deal. If you sell your soul to Swan for fame, that's going to be bad news. You probably shouldn't do it. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to do it, though, because the feeling of adoration and validation was just so satisfying that Mm. I would give anything for it. Yeah. And you're like, all right. Yeah. I mean, Swan talks to Phoenix and uh, says, like, did you like that? And Phoenix says, just give me that crowd again. Give me that crowd again. I want that. Would you give me anything for that? Uh, What do you want? I want your voice. And a moment I really love is after she hears Swan say, I want your voice, Phoenix looks them, smiles, and just says, is that all that you want? Is that all? And he's like, no, let's go back to my place. Yeah, I just, I like that they gave Phoenix, like, kind of her own agency in mm-hmm. that way, that she's like, no, dude, I'm, I'm down to fuck, too. I mean, come on. She's let's... like, I'm DTF if you're actually going to give me this audience. Because yeah. now I feel like this is a, a fairer exchange of something. So, yeah, she has this conversation two separate times, once with Winslow on the roof, and then also with Swan in the dressing room. And Phoenix is a little devastated, Random fun fact, the scene on the roof between Phoenix and Phantom yeah. is the last shot that they shot in the film. I always like those first and last shots. Interesting. And this is the last one that they did film out on a rooftop in New York. I can definitely see this like being at the end of the production and like having to move things along because when the Phantom removes his mask, not all of his face is painted. Like, it's just, like, the square area around his eye that's painted. Like, the rest of his face doesn't have anything on it. And I could really see, like, they're like, okay, just just paint the thing that we need for the, through the mask. Uh, do we see his face later on? Oh, fuck it, whatever. Just last night, go, 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 film it. This is not our last shot of the actual movie, though. Oh, no. She's going to go downstairs to the waiting limo with Swan. She's going to rat out yeah. Phantom, be like, he's up on the roof. That- and so it's like, thanks, bitch. Like, that, she gave him up quick. She calls him the freak that killed beef. Yeah, because to be fair, like, she doesn't know this dude. She had one conversation with him on the (laughs) stairs the night prior to an attempted sexual assault. So probably not the first thing on her mind is this guy who offered (laughs) once to help her vocally train. She's going to go home with Swan, and we're going to get, once again, another amazing scene where Lil Cuckles Winslow is going to be on the top of the roof. God, this is so hardcore. he is just going to masochistically watch with his little mask on as it's pouring down rain. And- with his giant, bulging cue ball eye, like just staring down at Swan and Phoenix making out. And Swan sees him. And like, there's almost like a sexual energy between Swan and the Phantom here. Oh yeah, Swan notices and he's just going to eye contact with Winslow through the glass. Yeah. Even though it should be said that Swan leaves his sunglasses on 
throughout this entire scene and it's a great choice because I was like you know what as much as I already liked you buddy like you just got a hundred percent of my respect he's just laying back on this duvet with his sunglasses and his little robe and she's going to be in this really great luxury robe and they're just going to be wrapped around each other a little bit in this luxurious manner just very slow kissing and the the rain is going to play into it but it's very clearly just this taunting thing Mm -hmm. for Winslow Winslow is going to try to kill himself and he's going to do it like the total dramatic bitch he is by driving (laughs) this dagger into his chest and the reddest blood is going to come out and spatter upon the earth and then Swan like the equally dramatic bitch he is is going to come up onto the roof holding this giant umbrella and we're going to get this just upshot of him under this umbrella and he's just going to tisk at him. Winslow, and you fool. As if it's the most tedious thing in the world. Just like, no more suicides, Winslow. It's, Didn't you read your contract? Like, this, come on. This, t- this contract terminates with me until I die. Neither can you, Winslow. You, have, you gave up your right to rest in peace. And you're like, nice job giving up your weakness, bro. But then Winslow, also getting that idea, like, oh, you have to die first, huh? Tries to stab him. Uh-huh. But nothing happens. Because he's like, I'm under contract, yeah, too. God. You're like, oh, shit. Like, who the Layers, fuck is he in contract to? Yeah, crazy. So then, uh, yeah, and also, like, Swan is, like, telling like we Swan kind of paints a picture for what Winslow is going to be forced into now. Because he's like... Yes, I, I think you should write some duets, perhaps some a love song for Faust. Like, just telling him, like, you're going to write whatever the fuck I want you to write. That's your job now. Yeah, I own you. That's kind of how this works. Right on. Right? Yeah. Although, at some point, then, Winslow's going to go into detective mode, because now he cares to see who he's gotten into contract <laughs> business with, and he's going to find a video vault. And this yes. video vault is also just astounding from a production angle. It's just going to have these meticulous video labeled binders all in a a Mm -hmm. little enclosed turquoise sea green space and he is going to find the video of swan's deal yes with the devil what's fascinating to me is that this like we say video it is a literal videotape this is like i I don't know too much about the history of videotape but at this time and prior to this like going back as far as like i think when they're saying that this thing was being recorded that there was videotape. I don't think it was in color, but it was gigantic videotape, like the kind that you see in old, super old computers, you know, systems, like with the big reel-to-reel things that were like always spinning around. There were videotape systems of that scale at the time. So when Winslow takes out this gigantic videotape that looks like it's two inches thick, as opposed to like the little stuff that like isn't a VHS tape, but like the big stuff and puts it in like that's real. That was a real thing mm-hmm. back in the day. I just don't think it would have been in color and it wouldn't have had the quality that they're showing on this. This is clearly like a thing. That well, this is, is this is the devil's magic. Man. I, yeah. Which let's get right to the devil. November 19th, 1953. There you go. Yeah. Okay. That's pushing it for video technology, but whatever <laughs> we get Swan who sounds more like actual Paul Williams in this scene. He doesn't have this voice quite yet. No. He's not Satan yet. He's not Satan yet, no. He's it's... just an asshole. Hi, this is Swan, and I've decided I'm going to kill myself because I'm going to get old, and I can't let this beautiful face be ravaged by time. I won't allow it. I'd rather die than than get old. And you're like, okay, Dorian, 
Fun side note, in the actual script, even though it's never said, I don't think, out loud, in all of the stage directions, he is referred to as Dorian in the script. Really? Okay, nice. Yeah, right on. Well... And here's why, because we've got this melancholic douchebag who's sitting, lounging in a tub and has decided, I'm going to kill myself because I'm too pretty to age. (laughs) And then from the reverse angled mirror, we get this face that's duplicate to his and it's going to appear. Uh It's going to say, hey, Swan, I hear you. I understand that you don't want to age, so I can do that for you. So we're getting a little bit of the gote. Mm Mm-hmm whatever um version Goofy, of Faust come on, where keep the devil is going to appear to him without being summoned yeah. specifically and he's gonna say hey here's the deal like this videotape will age instead of you and you'll just look like this forever as long as you contract yourself to me and he's like all right that sounds like a square deal but well at first he's like well i mean what do you got to lose right you're about to kill yourself yeah. I love that he says, like, what he says, like, you need to sign this in blood, and Swan holds up the razor. He's like, I was going to use this on my wrists. And the figure in the mirror says, well, your soul is damned either way. Like, yeah, so let's do this. Yeah, and he's I, like, all right. They're like, and he even says, uh, are you the devil? And the figure in the mirror just says, I go by, I go by many different names. Like, oh, Okay. <laughs> Yes, one of them apparently swan. So he is going to, yeah, make this little contract with a bit of Christian theology there that somehow the suicide would have damned him anyway. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like this is a square deal for sure. He's going to take it. And we also learn that if this videotape is destroyed, then he will be destroyed. So important information that Phoenix, or not Phoenix, that the Phantom learns here. Then we're going to get a five-way, not quite split-screen, but a five-way screen Yeah, well, he's looking happening. at a bunch of monitors where he's seeing a lot of different stuff going on, uh, where he finds out that not only has, has Swan made Phoenix on a contract, but he is going to kill her in the middle of the wedding ceremony they've chosen to hold tonight, as the finale of Faust, as Philbin says uh, in an earlier scene, wait a minute, so instead of going to hell, Faust gets the girl? Oh, well, okay, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, no, that totally tracks. We got a little, like, Melmoth the Wanderer coming in, mm-hmm. but the rate at which she fell was quite quick in yeah. a way, because we're going to get her riding around in limos, dressed like this amazing gothic widower in the veils, and she's smoking, and she's just a badass. She's, sniffing, I don't know. she's snorting coke as, as she goes. Like, wow, okay. I mean... I appreciate this. But we are going to get with these four TVs on a panel with the little on-air sign above yeah. them. We're going to get a push-in to one of the TVs, and it's going to dissolve into the actual space of what's inside the TV. Right on. This is a a fun little just snippet glance at the wonders we're going to get 20 years later in Snake Eyes. <laughs> but... That is for another day. But yes, we get this amazing just push in um, onto one of the screens and it's going to fade very seamlessly in an interesting way. We're going to get a tightly different visual quality on the, the TV view from when we enter the real life space. And this is just going to be our chaotic 
frenetic, frenzied finale. Yes. Where shit is just going down. So many, so many things are happening, and not everyone even knows what's going on. There are can-can dancers coming out, like a Vegas showgirl style, and the guys in the audience are just going crazy for them. Swan is slowly ascending from beneath the stage upwards. He has a ma- like a weird silver mask on. Phoenix is dancing in as- onto the stage. She looks like high as hell and doesn't really seem to know what the- what is even going on. The Phantom is running around to stop the sharpshooter who's going to kill Phoenix as soon as the priest who is being played by Philbin for the sake of this onstage performance. As soon as Philbin says, till death do you part, that's when the sharpshooter is supposed to kill Phoenix. However, the Phantom's quick enough, stops the sharpshooter. The guy shoots Philbin instead. He collapses. Chaos ensues. The Phantom takes a rope and, like, in true epic fashion, swings onto the stage knocks off Swan's mask, and it's revealed that because the Phantom burned all those videos from earlier, now Swan's face is like this horrific mesh of third-degree burns and melting skin. Yes, and a slight idea here from the picture of Dorian Gray is that when Dorian does stab his picture, suddenly the picture becomes pristine and young again and he starts taking on the visual aesthetics of what the picture had turned into Mm -hmm. as the life is draining out of him he becomes this husked old man so yes we have swan here who is becoming this burned degraded image that he had created over time these vegas show girl style dancers they are actually a group of cheerleaders from a Texas university because this is shot at the Majestic Theater so this was in Texas and they got a local university cheerleader troupe to come and apparently the costume designer when they designed these costumes at first it was they were a little bit skimpier and Brian De Palma remarked how he remembers that these cheerleaders were all just crying about how they didn't want to go out there in such skimpy outfits so they had to like last minute go and like sew a whole bunch more feathers on them so that these girls would like go out there Uh, so So that was like a little aside production note. But the other cool production note from the scene is that we're going to get a lot of our extras that have happened throughout this film, but we're going to get them coming to a head here, participating in this scene as the chaos ensues. But these are actually a troupe of people called the Performance Group out of New York that put on Dionysus in 69. So Brian De Palma had filmed them and he had worked with them. And of course, Bill Finley was involved. His wife, Susan, was very heavily involved in the the performance group. And they brought them along as their participatory extras. And they kind of mentioned, or De Palma mentioned, that these guys are so well trained in reaction and in creating movement and space that he kind of just let them go wild on set. Where he's like, you guys go over here and do your thing. That was his direction. So that's all fun and good. And yeah, this absolute insanity, it's filmed in what even De Palma will admit is kind of more of a cinema verite type of style, a little Mm. bit more documentary-ish almost. Like the camera is just letting shit happen. Yeah. Whereas before we had very cultivated angles, we had very cultivated senses of movement. This is just everything is moving around the camera going in and out of frame we're getting a lot of interesting choreography here but it does seem a little bit more chaotic because of it well there are shots where the cameramen there are men there are and the the, like behind the scenes cameraman but like they're just guys with cameras on stage with their cameras pointed at the action 
and there are moments when it seems to cut to what they would be capturing. So it almost goes to a cinema verite and nearly into a found footage sort of zone in the midst of all this chaos. And then Swan or Phoenix, uh, no, why can't I get any of their names right? Phantom is going to finally get his full vengeance by killing Swan and vice versa. They're 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 both gonna die. Yeah, basically. He stabs yeah Swan and his his self-inflicted stab wound immediately reopens. So he is not long for this world either. As he's dying on the stage, that is when Phoenix notices because he's fallen on the side of his face that hasn't been burned and so she just sees his pristine side of the face without the mask and she recognizes oh winslow and she crouches above him and pets his head as this camera just kind of drones out yeah just begins to float up and we get our end credits where all the actors like have their own little section where we see like out I don't know like alternate takes or outtakes of like the stuff that they were doing and yeah it's all pretty the bad. song is jaunty and fun yeah. everybody's having a good time hey. there was a different ending in okay. the script only slightly okay and I have that paragraph here as well tell me so kid one from the audience is gonna say wow what a finish this is better than beef because apparently this spectacle of death is somehow more stunning sure Swan dies, and Winslow suddenly falls down next to him in agony, as though a knife were plunged into his heart. He clutches his chest in vain to keep the blood from coursing out. He crawls toward Phoenix as the kids rip apart the huge swan. Phoenix stands over this chaos silently singing. Winslow reaches her feet, looks up into her mad eyes, and speaks her name. And then Winslow's dialogue is, Phoenix, I told you they would want more than you could give. Phoenix doesn't even see him. She continues singing madly. Winslow dies, alone and unnoticed. Oh, wow. I actually kind of like that a little bit more than the ending we have. That would have been... I love it. That would have been baller to do that one. Wow. I would have loved that ending. I mean, I don't mind the one we got because this whole movie is just like this great vaudevillian fever dream oh for sure yeah (laughs) especially with with the phoenix assassination plot where it's like oh no we gotta get down there before somebody kills phoenix i'm like do we though do we care i don't (laughs) i don't care so it it was all fine however they wanted to end it no that that idea that phoenix is so into the performance and singing and taking and just lapping up that adoration that she doesn't notice a man dying at her feet that's it's great yeah it's really that, great so and even Brenda Palma mentioned that he doesn't remember why the ending was changed because he didn't have a problem with the original ending yeah, either. weird so he has no memory of why it got changed but it's nice to know that idea was there that, that's yeah, really cool the idea was pitched and it was out there it was in the script mm-hmm. and yeah there's something a little bit more theming and impactful to me about him just dying alone on the stage especially since he did not know this woman, really. He met her once in a hall, yeah. and he liked her voice. And so there's these moments when she progresses and turns into this fame-hungry monster, and you're like, wow, that was a quick change of character. And you're like, no, it wasn't, That We didn't know her character up until this point. He just decided to become fixated on her. She could have always just been this bitch. <laughs> and that's kind of fun. Ah, so, yeah, he just nice. he just latched on, you know? Very cool. And thought he had a relationship with her, and she didn't know him. Mm-hmm. It, I was actually surprised that she recognized Winslow as it was, because, once again, she had seen him once in a hallway. Yeah. And that 
I suppose, with both its the ending we get and the ending we could have had, is the finale of Brian De Palma's 1974 masterpiece, Phantom of the Paradise. Yes, almost not named Phantom of the Paradise, actually. Do so, tell! What fun was this? little trivia. Oh, we have fun little trivia at the end of this. Th- oh, wow! Well, Yeah, we golly, do. If we golly, didn't get golly, enough gee, of that. <laughs> so this uh, movie was initially titled Phantom of the Fillmore, but they couldn't get the rights to the Fillmore, so... Also, that title sucks. Yeah, I mean, the Paradise is better, but yeah. I'm just saying. It was initially that, and so when they couldn't get the rights to the Fillmore, they just changed it to Phantom. And then they ran into legal troubles again, because the Phantom Comics <laughs> decided that they wanted to press back on the idea that somebody was using That's Phantom so as weird. a title. That's so weird. To think of the Phantom Comics as being like a copyright forced to reckon with at the time because yeah because it seems like the word phantom just can't be copyrighted in yeah, and of itself right so i don't weird, know but uh... i don't think they fully sued it was just this production ran into a lot of potential legal and copyright issues we did mention led zeppelin's swan records thing the title was going to be another one and then initially when this script was getting shopped around fox initially offered two million i think for the script and the production but then universal got involved where they pushed back on the idea that this film was infringing on their 1925 film phantom of the opera and they were in negotiations there a little while and fox ended up dropping 1.5 million of the advance and so suddenly this film had a lot less money and a lot more controversy surrounding it so that was unfortunate Although, my favorite trivia fact from this film, and it deals with the Paris release. (laughs) So I also watched the interview with Paul Williams when he's talking about making the music for this, and that some of the things, the unexpected things that have come out of Phantom of the Paradise just existing... And so this is one of his favorite things, too. Just the, the things that, like, he later on got to do in his career because this movie happened. Now, this movie was released in Paris. It did well in Paris, so it ran for a little while. Mm-hmm. The two dudes from Daft Punk. I oh, can't remember their yeah. names. Well, da- they, they, Daft Punk. They have names, yeah. but Daft Punk. Daft Punk. They met at a screening of The Phantom of the Paradise, and they were both such fans that I guess they went on to see it about 19 times. Wow. And years later, so throughout their career, when they were starting out, and when they started... They have spoken heavily, apparently, according to Paul Williams, on the influence that Phantom of the Paradise had on their music in terms of that scene in the pod where you have a dude in a chrome helmet that is playing with synthesizers. And they're like, we need to do that. We need to make this music. (gasps) And so... The genesis of Daft Punk comes from that scene Fucking in a. Phantom of the Paradise. God and damn. years later, they were they really wanted to meet Paul Williams because they loved the music to Phantom. They loved this aesthetic. They loved the idea. And so somehow by degrees of separation, they were able to hook up with Paul Williams. And they asked him, hey, could you collaborate on some songs with us? Could you be on some tracks with us? Which is actually the... So the tracks that he collaborated with on or on with them ended up being the album that won the 2014 grammy (laughs) and 
because Daft Punk doesn't talk, they asked Paul Williams to give their acceptance speech at the Grammys. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, this is a sequence of events that is brought to you by Phantom of the Paradise. So yeah, it really recontextualizes why Daft Punk wears helmets um, and plays with synthesizers, and it's fantastic. Name me another songwriter who has written songs for both the Muppets and Daft Punk. Doesn't exist, just Paul Williams. I mean, there might be, but I, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to know is. about them if they are. It's, no, just Paul Williams. But yeah, so Paul Williams pretty great. Uh, apparently, Guillermo del Toro was also a big fan of Phantom of the Paradise and sought out mm-hmm. Paul Williams to work on Pan's Labyrinth because of it as well. Oh, okay, so yeah. there's a there's a bunch of people that later he got to work with because of this movie. Uh, but the, the Daft Punk is by far and away like just the best thing. That's just super fun. So other people involved in this production. I just want to give a shout out randomly to <laughs> the cinematographer, Larry Pizer. He's going to do some fun things at the beginning of his career, but Larry Pizer also brought us Mannequin on the Move, <laughs> the Mannequin sequel. <laughs> Wait a minute. And I just think that's important. As as, as the director? No, as the cinematographer. Oh, so I'm okay. like, how does the cinematographer of this film also then go on to do Mannequin on the Move. And maybe you want to rewatch Mannequin on the Move to see like how the cinematography is, because I don't remember. Because the cinematography in this is great. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen Mannequin 2 on the Move, but I do not recall the cinematography being very good on it. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe it's yeah. uh, the forgotten gem of the Mannequin franchise. Of which there are two They're movies. also working on this is going to be a man named Tom Berman. And Tom Berman is the effects artist who created the aesthetic of the Phantom in this movie and some other things. But there's a sad little story that happens with Tom in that Tom had just purchased this company from, or the effects company from John Chambers. And John Chambers is a very famous special effects artist. He did Planet of the Apes is the one that he won the Academy Award for. So we uh, have Phantom seeking out John Chambers to do the effects on this movie. And you might notice in the credits, John Chambers is credited as the effects artist on this movie. Okay. He was not the effects artist on this movie. He never worked on this movie. Uh, Tom Berman worked on this movie. And he had purchased the company from John Chambers because Interestingly enough, at this time, John Chambers had stopped working in Hollywood to go work for the CIA because this is the middle of the Cold War and they were actually pulling some effects artists to help with the type of just spy transformation type of prosthetics and whatnot. Um, And so he was working for the CIA at the time and Tom Berman took over. And I think Tom Berman is still understandably a little bit hurt when the credits roll and it says effects by John Chambers, but he also is understanding of why they did that is because John Chambers is more of a name at the time, but it should be said he did not work on this. There is another effects artist, Rolf Miller, and he was the on-set effects artist. So apparently Tom Berman never met Brian De Palma. He never went to set. Like, Hmm. this was all in production. And this can be common sometimes, depending on productions. If you're, like, the warehouse guy, I know a lot of the films that I've worked on, like, half the time I've just been in a warehouse somewhere, like, making 
making some bodies, right, and making some blood after the pre-production meetings because there's not necessary reasons to be on set unless you're the on-set person. So that that all tracks. But Ralph Miller was the guy on set, so he's the guy that's going to do the the face melting stuff and the things that need to be directly applied to the actors. And he does get credited, but Tom Berman doesn't. So I wanted to to give him his little shout out. And then we get. Bill Finley and Brian De Palma. Okay, these two have done a few things together. Yes, they have. They've done, like, what, seven or eight films together? <laughs> um, uh, just about, yeah. Yeah. So we won't get too much into, like, all of Brian De Palma's oeuvre or anything, but interesting thing is that Brian De Palma and Bill or William Finley, but as far as I know, people called him Bill because that's what they seem to reference him as yeah. um, in interviews, that these two met in school, that Brian Zapamo went to Columbia University initially for his undergrad in physics, randomly. He <sighs> fell in love with cinema when he was in college, but he was a science guy up until then. Fair enough. But Bill Finley was a theater kid, and they became friends. And when Brian Zapamo ended up enlisting in his graduate program at Sarah Lawrence, he did a bunch of short student films, and he put Bill Finley in pretty much all of them. Yeah. But his first big one is going to be Wotan's Wake, which stars Bill Finley as a fairly similar figure. So my favorite hmm. summary of Wotan's Wake that I found, I'm just going to read it real quick, that Wotan has a disfigured face, oh. dresses in cloak and mask, and stalks couples to burn them with a blowtorch. Huh. He is also a sculptor of steel and garbage installations. <laughs> one day, one of his creations comes alive in the form of a young woman. She flees him when he tries to express his love by pointing the blowtorch at her. She hides in a house where some kind of orgy is going on. <laughs> okay. So this is the, the plot summary I found for them. An orgy, Short, you say? Like, well, nice. Yeah, so it sounds like a little bit like Ed Wood, Orgy the Dead meets like this film, really. Phantom of the Paradise meets like Philomena. Mm. So, yeah, Bill Finley had already donned some masks and insanity for All right. well. Brian De Palma. So he knew right away, no, I want him for the Phantom. And they, yeah, would go on to pretty much do a whole bunch of films together. He was in Brian De Palma's first film and... Bill Finley's last screen credit was also a Brian De Palma film. Unfortunately, the Black Dahlia movie, but... Oh, I never saw that one. I've heard it's... Of the... It was disappointing. Uh, it yeah. was really disappointing. Lesser De Palma work there. That's, that's too bad. Yes. I, Brian De Palma has done so much better. But Brian De Palma has brought us enough extraordinary stuff that it's fine. Yeah. But apparently also Robert De Niro was in grad school with Brian De Palma, which is also where they met. So De Niro's in a lot of his early student films yeah, as well. Yeah, I saw De Niro's features, name but... like in yeah one of the early, like it was one of his first films uh, for De Niro was uh, De Palma's uh, earliest work there. Yeah, it's weird when you go back and you see footage of him like hanging out, like Brian De Palma and Robert De Niro and Steven Spielberg. And there was like somebody else, too. They were all just friends at the wow. time. They kind of hung out. How lucky. And, it was, and yeah, interesting little time capsule. But yes, then we get De Palma himself. What would you like to say about De Palma himself? Anything? I'd like to say thank you, Brian. Thank you, Mr. <laughs> De Palma, for everything that you have done. And everything, all the bold choices you are never afraid to make in your films. Anything else? Your top five? <laughs> I think we have. I think we've covered it all. Top five. So my honorable mention will go out. Uh, it's a three-part split between Gaston Larue, Oscar Wilde, and 
Germanic folklore. <laughs> uh, because those are the main, uh, obviously, inspirations for all of this. Uh, Guests on the Ruse, Phantom of the Opera, Oscar Wilde's Picture of Varying Gray, and the general collected tales of Faust that all came together for this movie. I think number five for me is going to be the cinematography, which it seems, I know it's odd to put that so low, but there's just a lot of other great people I want to talk about. But yes, the cinematography in this movie is beautiful. I actually was thinking of uh, A Clockwork Orange in a few brief moments of this, just like the the wide angle work and mm-hmm. the way that they frame some of the architecture, especially with the building that's uh, the headquarters of Death Records. Uh, just very nice moments in there, and I, I like a lot of good symmetry work. So yeah, there you go. Number five for me, cinematography. Yeah, honorable mention goes out to little Tom Berman for uh, right on. <laughs> getting overlooked there for his uh, effects and contributions. My number five is the Juicy Fruits. I <laughs> right love on. those dudes. Yeah. My God, they they performed and they were so good. I Yeah, they just cemented my love in the first five minutes. Right, well, very good. That's my number four is the Juicy Fruits. And the fact that it, those guys were not trained musicians, but like a comedy troupe, and that technique worked out really well, believable, and yet also very versatile uh, depictions of different musical styles. So I just really appreciate that about them. All right. Your number four, go. My number four is Bill Finley, or William Finley. Right on. Okay. Good. He he was working that eye, that soul-piercing stare. How did he... Oh. And like most of it, he had to have his head kind of tilted back yeah. so that the camera could was... really get him in the frame and get that eye and like the light. And to have that much light, I mean, they probably had to spotlight that eye in order yeah. for it to show up like that on it's... camera. So he's looking into the light. He's getting that tension in the neck. And at the beginning, I really did. He won me over very quickly as the sweet, poor Patsy guy. Mm-hmm. His charisma, man, it brought me in. Since you've mentioned William Finley, I'm going to have to go with my number three is uh, Jessica Harper, because this was a very early film for her. I know that she had done some theater work, but I think this was her first theatrical film and was just a kind of a one in a million shot for her to get. She had heard like another actor had auditioned for the role that she figured like, oh, well, that oh, she'll she's better than me. She's like more famous and more beautiful. She's going to get the role and then found out she had the spot and was a big moment for her. And just a lot of the choices that she's making in this role are really great. She has such a really understated yet full command of her stage presence when she's working. So, yeah, all, all many good things there. Uh, my number three, Paul Williams. The right music in this is great. Yes. It, it's one of those things where the music didn't necessarily need to be great, but it was. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of want the stage play. I want the soundtrack. There was, it provided this very cool glam opera pop cantata feel. And it was really also cool just to see all of the different variations of how these songs could play out as beach new wave versus 50s doo-wop versus horror rock versus glam rock and paul williams constructed all of those Mm -hmm. and that's that's just great so on top of that he did a really amazing performance as the Kiefer sutherland ricky gervais satan (laughs) i like i said i didn't even recognize him so he, he just had style right on 
Okay, my number two is going to be Brian De Palma. Uh, you know, writer-director, fantastic. And researching this, it was really interesting to go through online and find his earlier work. And, yeah, just re-experiencing this film and seeing all of his trademarks, and it was just a fun joyride. I know that you've mentioned he doesn't... He, he comes across a little pretentious in his interview. I didn't see many interviews with him, but he... Mm-hmm. You, you, you tell me he... He seems to sound like he invented the split screen from what you've told me about his interviews. <laughs> there was a moment in the documentary De Palma is the title of it that's on Netflix right now. That yeah, he has this moment that almost seemed like when I invented split screen. I don't know if he exactly used that terminology, but that was like the vibe. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, buddy, let's, let's take a step back. But oh boy. He, he's very confident in his abilities, but on oh. the flip side, he does have abilities. So yeah. it, it's yeah, it was kind of like what I was saying with Joaquin Phoenix on 8mm. It's like, it's, there are things that some people do that just, you want to hate them, but you can't because they have the talent to back it up. So you're like, fine. Oh, fine. You know what? You know what, you Yak and Phonics? We're going to allow it. It's okay, man. Okay. My number two is also Brian De Palma. All right. For a lot of the same reasons. Mm. I am a De Palma fan, especially some of his more genre work. When I first read the synopsis to this, there was a moment that my brain glitched and I said, this is a Brian De Palma film? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and then I thought about it a little bit. And I'm like, no, actually, this seems like a celebration of insane like insane genre. Yeah, and yeah. the more I think about it, De Palma has always been very genred, but genre adjacent right where you have these films like blowout and scarface and mission impossible snake eyes that are very colorful they're very loud and they do a lot of cool cinematic stuff and they feel like genre pieces because they don't feel like straight drama right blowout feels like it should be a a genre film but then you're like but what genre is blowout exactly (laughs) and Phantom of the Paradise actually fits right into that, where you're like, this feels like a genre piece. It's certainly not mainstream drama, but what genre it is, it's a whole bunch of them. Ah, Fascinating. Well, uh, my number one is going to be Paul Williams. And I'm putting him so high on the list, I think, just because of the journey I went through in discovering uh, more about him. Because I knew who he was prior to this. I knew him as a songwriter. Uh, I think the first time I ever saw him, oddly enough, was on The Muppet Show way back in the day. And watching interviews with him was really fascinating, Like especially the one with Guillermo del Toro. They talk a little bit about this movie, but he also talks a lot about his like you know problems with addiction over the years. Uh, he like openly admits, like, I don't remember the 80s. I don't remember what happened from 80 to 89. And 89, late 89, I began to wake up. Last drink was early 1990, and I've been sober ever since then. And he is very supportive of performers who deal with addiction. I forget the organization that he works with, but he is he advocates big time for performer rights and making sure that artists and creators are able to make a, an honest living uh, doing what they do, which given his role in this film is... that There's some sweet irony to that, yeah. I find. Yeah, he does seem like a really sweet guy. He speaks very happily of his career and is just so thankful for everything that he's been able to be a part of, be it writing songs for the Muppets or or collaborating with Daft Punk. He is just happy as can be all the way through. And he's just a 
he's just a, a delightful man to watch reflect on everything that he's done. So that's why he's my number one. My number one goes to the production on this film. So I'm kind of right. wrapping cinematography up with Brian De Palma sure, because sure, I sure. know how controlling De Palma is of his shots. So mm-hmm. for me, the cinematography is really part yeah. of Brian De Palma's stuff. Although, yeah, Pizer gets a, a little shout out there too. But Jack Fisk. Oh, Jack Fisk. He is a stunning art director and he worked on this film he also, he's, his art direction career has been very interesting. He's good friends with David Lynch and with Terrence Malick. And so right a lot of the art direction on almost every Terrence Malick film, I think, has Jack Fisk as the art director for that film um, sure. or for his films. He hasn't worked on every David Lynch film, but he's worked on several of them. And most notably Mulholland Drive. And because uh-huh. I think he's actually credited for Mulholland Drive. The other ones oh, he's yeah. just been around and mm-hmm. set designing and whatnot. And as much as I love the music on this, as much as I love the camera angles, my favorite thing about this film is the stuff that gets put <laughs> in front of the camera. Right it on. is great the color of the walls those blood orange walls with the pink accents i i don't know just the spaces the costuming the the actual like locations the location scout kind of gets whatever shout out here too because <laughs> jack fisk of course is just going to be the director there's a lot of people that go into production which is why i'm just saying production in general but i am a fan of fisk's work and yeah this this movie is just so textured that goddamn gold record desk oh the my god yes recording pod like <sighs> so good. when that gold record desk just appeared on screen <laughs> i i experienced emotions of elation and wonder <laughs> unlike i have ever felt before so the yeah the production on this is just astounding oh. and it's a visual feast there's a lot of people to thank for that, but we'll throw Jack Fisk's name in there because we haven't Why really not? talked about him yet. Uh, so. Well, it's been a journey, I must so, say. So, yeah, it sounds like we would recommend this movie to a friend. This movie's a fun, fun time. I'd recommend this film to my enemies just to say, like, guys, this is how you turn it around right here. Just trying to make their lives just a little bit better, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yes, all right, so... The time for the safe word has come, and I, I chose this because I am an unrepentant lover of this film and so i decided if this is the realm of eternal damnation then hell yeah sign me up for that perdition <laughs> safe Woo! word out <laughs> safe word out <laughs> all right let me do things like the legend of the phoenix <laughs> all ends with beginnings what keeps the planet spinning? Ah, uh, the force from the beginning. The filters.
they found it. You want that creep to open a paradise? Not him. Music. Listen to the music. The present has no ribbon. Your gift keeps on giving. What is this some feeling? If you wanna leave, I'm with it. That all isn't that enough, and that is nothing finished. Most of but she's at the top of the charts today, Bowman. Today, tomorrow, she'll be forgotten. Besides, we have more important business, you and I, need. the paradise. I know, boss. We've looked everywhere, you just don't seem like won so many others that he once tried to deposit them in Fort Knox. He brought the blues to Britain. He brought Liverpool to America. He brought folk and rock together. His band, the Juicy Fruits, single-handedly gave birth to the nostalgia wave of the 70s. Now he is looking for the new sound of the spheres to inaugurate his own Xanadu, his own Disneyland. It's a whole series of songs that tell the story of Faust. Who? Faust. What labels he have? Faust was a legendary German magician who sold his soul to the devil for worldly experience and power. What is this, kid? School time? I got a plan to catch. Look, a song is a song. You either dig it or you don't. You're not just doing this to be nice, are you? Never let my personal desires influence my aesthetic judgment. Boy, you sure got some temper. I'm sorry. I don't know what comes over me. that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!